Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? I am Drew. Hey, hey. Hello, everyone. So this week, what we're going to do is we are going to do something we haven't done in a while, which is... What's that, man? What's that? What have we done in a while? I feel like uh, recent episodes, we've been kind of mired in a lot of TV shows and, you know, just uh, a lot of our other segments. But we we haven't really picked up just, you know, just a singular comic to really focus on and lavish with our love and affection, with our joint love and affection. So this is our opportunity to pick one book and to focus all of our attention on it and to you know bring shine a light on it and and introduce it to the world so that all of you out there can uh learn a little something and get some exposure to to some good comics because this was a rough week black adam came out this weekend apparently it's popular and uh (laughs) my bowels are hurting from the thought of it uh i did not start out the week with an impacted bowel and as of this moment right now uh my bowel is quite impacted it's impactful it's full of impact what about the bowel juice (laughs) (laughs) i don't even want to picture what your bowel juice looks like i was gonna ask you a type of a slurry kind of a (laughs) uh okay now now i've pictured it (laughs) thanks what were you gonna say i was gonna ask if you had any words to say to any of the good listeners who were wondering and waiting anticipating hoping for us to do a black adam autopsy right right i was gonna say that uh it'll probably happen around the same time that i do my review of the i don't when was it when i do my review of the of creed's very first album uh <laughs> what is that or late 90s early 2000s i don't remember the exact date uh, but it must have been late 90s yeah like when we do our episode where we discuss the artistic merits of creed and what it means <laughs> to have our arms wide open uh i don't even think that was their first album i think that was their second one Oh wow, they made another album after. Oof. Before it that hurts. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. thought that they were able to make two albums hurts. No, yeah. they they definitely had at least three. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. My gut's hurting right now. What's the <laughs> what's the connection between Creed and Black Adam? Uh they're both poser ass crap. <laughs> I see. I see. Sounds like you already have some thoughts about Black Adam, even though you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I I think the commercials are pretty one-dimensional. They say everything that they need to say. I, I'd be pretty surprised if the commercials weren't exactly everything I expected to be in my viewing of it. That's that's how little faith I have in this movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't even remember and, who the director is or who's involved I don't think it matters yeah that's true it probably doesn't they right I'm pretty sure they could have gotten like 
you know, a TikTok cat to be one of the, the directors and it pretty much would have been the same thing. I don't even know who that is. Uh, well, okay, now that we're going to go down this rabbit hole, um, one of my other chats, they've been, there's someone who's a, a bit of an, an ardent, well, no, he's not ardent, but he's a defender of Black Adam and on a wider note, crap. So <laughs> so one of your friends is a defender of crap. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. Is he going to listen and, to this podcast? uh there's a chance like i i've had conversations with him and sometimes i'm surprised to find when when he mentions things about the podcast and i'm i'm surprised that he listened <laughs> to it <laughs> so so there's a 50 50 chance that he'll listen to this particular episode and he'll know that i'm talking about him but you think I'm he'll be mad that chance no i mean he, he i've said it to his face what i think of his taste so okay okay <laughs> it's it's not a big deal for me now, now let's let's hear what you have to say about his taste. And you well, can say that to the whole world now. What was I saying? Oh, uh, what, what's been happening on our group chat is he's been bombarding us, bombarding us with uh, just news accounts of how well the movie is doing, as if that means anything to me. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think the first thing he sent was, you know, oh, it's got a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of like. I think it was like 72% or maybe even higher, maybe even 80 or something like that. Okay. Like, again, th- that doesn't that sound too impressive, to be honest. Well, he thinks it validates his opinion because, you know, he he has his finger on the pulse of the people. So he knows. He knows. Okay. Okay. So it's yeah. got an 80% audience approval rating? Something like that. And then, you know, uh, I, I've just been learning a bunch of random dumb facts about the release like uh i think uh it made like 67 million dollars box uh, box office opening weekend uh, again as, as if that in and of itself is supposed to make me wet my pants in joy is that uh better than the other dc movies uh i think it's okay i don't know what it is in comparison to other dc movies but it I think they said that it's like the rocks, one of the rocks highest, if not the highest opening weekend for, for a rock movie. Okay. Okay. And good for the rock. rock. The rock is a phenomena. He's a rock nomina. I've never heard him refer to such, but okay, I'll, I'll take it. It's, it is the love child of the rock and a phenomena. I see. All right. Yeah. It's, it's undeniable. How do the box office receipts compare to a typical Marvel movie opening? I think from what I heard, 67 million is actually a, a low estimate on their part because it was them hedging their bet, hedging. It was the studios hedging their bets that this movie was going to, uh, you know, not do, it, it was going to do decent, but it wasn't going to do like exceedingly well. Cause I think, uh, like Infinity War did a hundred million on opening weekend or something like that. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So well, it ain't no Infinity War. Yeah, <laughs> Infinity War was a pretty big one. Yeah. How much did something yeah. like Ant Man do? I don't know. I'd I'd have to double check again. Yeah. It's, I, mean, I don't pay numbers. attention to sales. Exactly. Well, like garbage sells all the time. You know. So. Uh, yeah. Does that does that 
invalidate my personal opinion when something doesn't sell well? No. Exactly. Like I'm confident. I'm I'm even more confident in it when it doesn't do well with the masses. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Cuz the masses as a whole are pretty stupid. So yeah. if everybody likes something, you kind of have to question why they like exactly. it and there's exactly. a good chance that if everybody likes it, it's probably pretty stupid. Exactly. Exactly. It's just the law of diminishing returns. So, you know, the human race, as we began to populate the face of the earth and as we began to, there began to be more of us, uh, the law of diminishing returns is the qualitative aspect of people just shrinkens with uh, each additional person that's added. So, you know, that eight billionth and first person that's born on this planet, I have utterly zero respect for them. And ladies and gentlemen, that is Albert's thesis for why we need population control. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, okay, there was another thing that he sent, which was, um, and I want to make a note of this. I feel like this uh, we're losing the 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 guiding light of what this episode was about, but it's okay, it's you, okay. You you tempted me by uh you tempted me with the stake of crapping on uh Black Adam and I I took it ferociously mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the lion the lion heart of Avalon that I It'll am. make your it'll make your bowels feel better. Uh, yeah, because, you know, opinions are like craps, uh, better out than in, unless you are purposefully holding it in so that when you are ready to uh, excavate it upon someone's lawn or front doorstep, it is going to be at its most impactful. Exactly, exactly. Yes. You don't want to have rabbit droppings. You want to have a yeah. fat dump truck. I want them to run out and slip and fall as they're running out like uh they're in some sort of benny hill bit yeah like a mud yeah. pit yeah there we go <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but i think i forget what the the actual uh thing that he sent said but it the the essence of what the the news article or whatever uh snippet that he sent was that i think they said something to the effect of this movie the last time that a movie was this highly regarded amongst audience scores was the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. So all the movies that came out since the Batman trilogy, none of them have hit the heights of quote unquote success uh, that Black Adam has. Are you like, talking about in terms of the audience uh, approval rate? I think it's the audience uh, appro- a- approval rate. Uh, I forget what the exact metric was, uh, mm-hmm. but it was again, it was something pretty meaningless to me. Is this uh, just for DC movies, or does it include movies in general? Uh, I think DC movies. Okay, here's here's what it says here. I think I found it. Black Adam Rotten Tomato audience score best for DC Marvels. Uh, DC movies since Nolan's trilogy. So in in terms of Nolan audience score, uh, no DC movie uh, or like I guess superhero movie has hit the heights that Black Adam has since. Yeah, but uh, think about what Nolan's. got in between. Well, the article seems to have left that out. 
Additionally, <laughs> to be clear, this article is from Screen Rant. So, oh yeah, that's yeah, pretty pointless. Yeah, exactly. The ultimate and clickbaity meaninglessness. Exactly. So he sent that to us, and you know, he was practically, uh, you know, stroking his junk when he was telling us that, as if it was like, see, I was right. I was right to like this movie. Did the other friends in your group chat encourage him or were they impressed by him or did they just kind of uh, ignore him? I'm pretty sure we were all equally mocking him. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but he's, he will not be deterred, will he? No, because he, the masses are on his side as far as he's concerned. Oh, okay. So he's already won the moral victory in his own mind. Well, I think if you like Black Adam, you already lost the moral victory right out the door. <laughs> so, and and let me clarify something to those of you listening. I'm saying this as someone who actually kind of enjoys The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the that's the funny part of this whole entire conversation is I don't think there there's anything inherently wrong or bad about The Rock. Like I I I can't say that I'm a huge fan of his movies, but I, I enjoy The Rock as a concept. I enjoy the, He's an electrifying entertainer, man. He's the most electrifying <laughs> entertainer of our time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, again, I like him as a man, as a person, uh, but I, I can't say that. I, I, I'd even go so far as to say that I think there's a part of me that hopes and wishes that he's going to make something someday that I can really, you know, love. Right. And it just so happens that black Adam is not that I was even initially behind black Adam as the rock. Cause I think black Adam could work uh, or rock could work as black Adam, but the trailer did not move me. And uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's pretty much all there needs to be said on that subject. That's fair. I do hope yeah. your friend listens to this and, Maybe he'll uh, send us an angry message on our social media or something. <laughs> Tell us yeah. how wrong we are. Yeah, sure. Uh, like he can send us some more, uh, you know, screenshots of useless, uh, uh, you know, pandery crap to try to convince us. And I'll just, you know, you know, put one finger over one nostril and blast a snot rocket at it. <laughs> <laughs> If you could pick The Rock to play an MCU character, who would it be? Oh man. Well, it's it's kind of the the almost immediate reaction that I was gonna have was probably gonna be like Namor, <laughs> which is funny because <laughs> Namor is basically Marvel's Black Adam. You mean uh, more Black Adam's their Namor? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that's true. Okay, Black Adam is their Namor. Yeah, uh, but yeah. yeah, I mean. I'd definitely say Namor has a lot better comics than Black Adam. Yeah. And now that I think about it, if they applied the costume that they actually took for Namor in the Wakanda movie and just applied that to The Rock, he'd look way cooler as, come on, he's a wrestler. So he'd basically just be wearing his wrestling gear. Yeah, that's true, man. Right? Yeah. 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 And... Well, okay, the one the one area where 
they might ruin it for me is they weren't willing to put hair on the rock to make him look like black adam yeah so they probably wouldn't do that if if marvel had gotten him to be namor they probably wouldn't get him to we we'd have a bald namor and i don't think i'm about that yeah that that would be weird yeah yeah so i thought of who i would want the rock to play in the mcu who galactus <laughs> you like that? Uh, that'd be pretty funny. I I am on board with that choice. See, and, and that way, he w- his hair wouldn't matter because he would just be wearing that helmet. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or Doctor Doom. <laughs> Rockter Doom. <laughs> Uh, that would be great too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just imagine him trying to spew like you know, uh, facts about nuclear physics or whatever <laughs> as the Rock. <laughs> that would be entertaining. That would definitely be stretching his acting chops though, because he'd be playing a character that I don't think he's, I don't think he's played that kind of character before. A scientist or like a, a I guess. A despot. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. Doom's not necessarily somebody known for his physical strength or anything that requires a lot of, you know, um, physical exertion or activity. It's more about his cunningness and his intellect and his yeah, yeah, just his more of his force of will more than anything well, and his armor. I was gonna say on that note. Now I'm just imagining like a ripped Galactus. Yeah, cause yeah, that's what I that's what I kind of pictured in my mind. Cause I always feel like for all of Galactus Galactus's power and strength, he he, like if you shrunk him down to regular people size, he never seemed to have a pretty, an exceptionally impressive physique or an imposing one, you know. Most of the time he's wearing that armor so i don't that's true so for all we've ever seen him naked for all we know underneath that armor he's like an adonis yeah i mean i bet after he consumes a planet his muscles are just glistening with power (laughs) he's got just washboard abs and his biceps are just you know bulging yeah 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 he's just like you know did you buy tickets to the gun show? <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, should we get back to the topic of of uh, of choice? Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, get back on yeah. track. Exactly. So that was our spiel on Black Adam, folks. Yeah, you're not gonna get a full episode. That that entire opening act. That was it. <laughs> we watched the trailer, saw some commercials, and we have pronounced our judgment. Yeah. You're not going to get a Rotten Tomato score from us, but you'll get, you know, our snot rocket hate <laughs> projectile <laughs> shot at you into your ears. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of like a Rotten Tomato score, I guess. <laughs> it's probably more rotten 
than tomato. There we go. There we go. All right. But that being said, this week's book that we both read and that we're going to review for the episode is Yuri, My War Gone By. Drew, would you please, uh, you know, grace us with the credits and the and a little bit of background information on it? Sure. So Fury, My War Gone By was a 13 issue series originally published under Marvel's Max imprint, their adult readers imprint. It was originally published in single issue format in 2012 to 2013. Here's a rundown of the creative team. It's written by Garth Ennis, penciled and inked by Garan Parlov, colored by Lee Luridge, lettered by Rob Steen. The covers were by Dave Johnson, and it was edited by Sebastian Gerner and Nick Lowe. Albert, you want to hit us with the synopsis? Sure, I'll uh, try my best because it's a pretty dense book and there's a lot going on, but the story of Fury, My War Gone By follows Nicholas Fury, a, uh, I guess, an operative within the CIA, and it follows his life over the course of decades uh, and four different theaters of uh, war where he, where we experience four different tales that are interconnected. Um, They really paint your view of what someone who is, who is deeply inserted into the life of espionage and just how it affects their life, their relationships and the overall trajectory of their being. Um, So we follow Fury as he goes into uh, French Indochina, Cuba, Vietnam, and Nicaragua. And uh, again, we just view these different experiences over the course of decades and experience just the corrosiveness of, of war on the human spirit. I think that's... Yeah. Adequate, right? I mean, I think so. Giving away too much. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll we'll keep it spoiler free for a few minutes as we just go over general thoughts and impressions of the book, and we'll tell you yeah. guys before we go into full spoiler mode. A Let's, brief yeah. introduction of the various creators, particularly uh, the writer and the line artist, but uh, Garth Ennis is obviously probably most well known for preacher and today probably the boys those are mm-hmm. two of his biggest works in comics but he's also in my mind i know i th- i think of him as one of the few writers who consistently writes war comics and in fact i probably no i definitely would consider him the premier war comic guy just in Mm. general because in especially in these past few decades when superheroes you know really dominate the industry he's dabbled in that world but he spent so much time whenever he can doing his own kind of comics and you can tell that the comics he's most passionate about are war comics 
but he's also yeah. done other things too like he's done some judge dread he's done uh hellblazer he's done his own spin on superheroes like with hitman and with you know working on various other darkness. don't forget arcs. the darkness <laughs> yeah, he, did, he did an arc on the darkness you know he's done issues of batman and spider-man and whatnot the authority the other big thing that he did was the punisher the max series and the marvel knight series we had his punisher max on our marvel top 25 list when we did our list uh early on in the podcast mm-hmm. and I, I still think that stands out as a really high watermark for his career yeah definitely the best punisher story uh yeah you have any other thoughts on garth ennis well, I was going to add to what you were saying earlier, which was, um, you know, he's a guy who writes a lot of different kind of comics. And I would even go so far as to say that he's not necessarily known for, you know, conventional superhero comics. And uh, there was even an interview um, or there have been several interviews where he talks about how he finds the concept of superheroes kind of silly. Um, I don't remember exactly which where where i read this and you know i could be getting the details wrong so you know take what i have to say with a grain grain of salt but i do remember him telling the story about how um when he got into comics it was at an older point in his life um you know he he wasn't a kid but he was either a teen or a preteen or something like that and so naturally he gravitated towards comics that were more about quote unquote real things right so by the time he was into comics the notion of superheroes even then was kind of silly to him and i think that shows in his work um yeah yeah but he does that isn't to say that he doesn't have some love for superheroes um he does he does enjoy the idea of superman he like respects superman yeah i say that he i wouldn't say that he has that same level of respect for anybody else um yeah well, it's pretty know, interesting in of mainstream superheroes mm-hmm. yeah yeah i've definitely heard him and read his interview i've heard him say in interviews and read interviews of him where he said stuff like how he isn't a fan of how superheroes dominate the industry and yeah like you were saying, there is an element of silliness to them. And yeah, like you can definitely see it in a lot of his work that does exist in the Marvel or DC universe. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I think about something like Hitman, which was a character he created, co-created in the DC universe and had that character, he had that character interact with various other DC heroes and I think it was the first issue, or if not the first issue, like one of the early issues, he has the main character, he has Hitman straight up vomit on Batman's boots, you know, just because <laughs> that's essentially what he thinks of Batman. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you just get those kinds of references and all, so- all sorts of his work. Like there's uh, a okay. there's a okay. Punisher Marvel Knight story that took place in the Marvel Universe, and he had the Punisher encounter the hulk daredevil and wolverine and yeah just the way that he treated those superheroes it it was pretty much 
they were just a joke, you know, like there was this a scene where uh in one of the issues the Punisher is fighting Wolverine and he just treats Wolverine as a as this joke where at yeah. some point he gets chopped up or he gets chainsawed by by this gang of angry midgets and then while he's uh <laughs> fighting the Punisher, the Punisher gets one of those steamrollers and just rolls them flat like a cartoon character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's you know, Marvel's gonna... most popular character, so you you'll just yeah. see stuff like that where Ennis clearly doesn't have a whole lot of love for the characters he's writing, kind of treats them mm. with a, just a smidgen of contempt at times. Yeah, I was gonna but, say. Yeah, you're like, right about just... super, about Superman. He Superman's the one character that I can think of that Ennis definitely treated with pretty high respect. There's that one issue of Hitman. Yeah. Hitman meets Superman, and that's honestly straight up one of the best Superman stories you can find out there. Mm-hmm. I I was gonna say that if you want a if you want an example of something that illustrates his view on superheroes, like something mainstream, I'd say something like The Boys, since that's popular right now, just as. Mm-hmm. If you just take that as kind of his thesis on superheroes, just by looking at them, there's nothing really noble or heroic about any of them. And in fact, they're all bastards. Yeah. Um. Exactly. And it's, yeah, it's it's kind of that uh cynical look at superheroes, uh that he has that he applies to them, uh when he's telling a story like the boys. Uh, now, granted, the show is pretty different from what we see in the comics if, if anything and, the show feels know. like it's a more toned down version exactly exactly that's exactly in, what in I the comics it, like it really does feel like all superheroes are bastards it leans into it it really leans into the just the gruesomeness of their character yeah but, um you know just just so you have an idea of you know there are any of you who are listening who only watch the show and you think that that's pretty bad what you watched on the show is pretty bad it gets substantially worse <laughs> yeah uh, if yeah. you read the comic is, is what i was gonna say but yeah yeah but that being said uh yeah when i think of him um you know his most popular works are at least in my mind uh something like you know obviously the boys now and preacher are probably the two big names that you mentioned earlier and he he when i think of him he's usually the writer that makes me think of he's known for two things and um one of them is you know just kind of mean-spirited gross-out humor mm-hmm. uh, which is i think the thing that a lot of people notice first because his his stuff is just so out there and so harsh he created crossed that, oh i didn't know he actually created it i just he knew he worked on it oh no he, he oh, created my. it yeah <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> well yeah right so it's just his his comics are just so harsh that they're they have the capacity to turn one's stomach if you're not accustomed to his writing style or the different themes or ideas that he 
that tend to re- reoccur when he does his work. But and, but the second thing that he's known for, and I think this is, uh, it gets less attention because people generally don't. It, it's it's not as noticeable as you know the gross out stuff. But he does have the ability to tell really good human stories, stories about mm-hmm. people and characters and just their experiences. But you kind of have to dig through the muck of his sensibilities to get to that creamy nougat core of goodness and uh you know decency that he tries to that he can exhibit when he wants to you know yeah here's how i would put it i think with something like preacher there's definitely a lot of gross out humor and a lot of kind of the stuff that leans more towards vile or even repulsive uh mm-hmm. in the story and there's there's definitely a lot of stuff that's just anti-religion in general but specifically anti god and uh judeo-christian religion um he's he's definitely there's definitely an element of a diatribe against organized religion or just religion in general and the very concept of god in something like preacher and it can make it kind of hard to stomach especially if you are a religious person at all or you know even if beyond that like just the you know just straight up grossness of some of the stuff that's gross because it's played off as a joke like that's definitely in there but if you his level of cruelty is pretty high up there too (laughs) yeah yeah but if you do take the time to read preacher there is some stuff in there that is quite moving and emotionally resonant and even profound like the stuff that he has to say about friendship uh especially in something like preacher where it's there's a lot of stuff between jesse and cassidy well i won't spoil it just because i don't know uh even though it's an old story we're not here to spoil preacher but just to discuss preacher in broad strokes i do think that there's some interesting stuff that he writes there about friendship and brotherhood and even uh, forgiveness and understanding and there's also a pretty compelling love story and heck even in that comic there's like smaller one-off stories that are pretty memorable too like there's a story about jesse's father who i think was a vietnam vet and it's basically an excuse for ennis to do a war story with steve Dillon in the middle of preacher uh, because that's uh-huh. what you know he loves doing these war stories war comics and he yeah he's really good at them uh it's just that yeah you have to if you're gonna read for those elements of his work in something like preacher you got to be prepared to uh withstand the stuff that can be kind of offensive or just kind of edgy and i feel like with Mm -hmm. the passage of time like people seem more sensitive to edgy edginess like there's yeah. There's a yeah, no. Sense, yeah, like in the present day, there it feels like compared to 20 years ago, people are more uh likely to be upset at something that could be construed as uh just callously cruel or, you know, uncouth or something. But the yeah. other thing, yeah. the other thing I want to say about 
how he writes stories that can be very humane is that a lot of his more serious war comics, I think, are actually pretty humane. The violence and the gore in the serious stories that he writes, it, it doesn't feel gratuitous. Sometimes it can be, but I think it's just really there to show you how awful and violent war actually is, right? But then the stuff that uh, he does with the characters in, in those stories, like if you read a lot of his the war stories comics that he did, especially the ones that were published by Vertigo, or if you read his Battlefields comics uh, from Dynamite, a lot of those comics have stories about soldiers and people in either mm. directly involved in the war or just uh, you know civilians who are caught in war. And it, there's a lot of really powerful stuff and meaningful moments in, in there, you know, like this kind of stuff that can really move you and make you think uh, about the reality of war. Um, yeah. Kind of makes me, it calls to mind uh, some of the stuff that we sometimes talk about when we uh, discuss Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, because that's kind of a war comic as well, even though it's a science fiction book. But the way that it presents, the way that book presents war, um, you know, and it makes us think about actual war and, uh, you know, the the human element involved in it. And I feel like with Ennis's war comics, it's the same thing, except, you know, obviously he's writing about more realistic presentations of war. And uh, the way that he's able to do it is really well done because he's not only faithful to historical accuracy as much as possible, but he creates characters that even though they may be flawed or imperfect people, uh, and you don't always necessarily root for them. Sometimes you're not supposed to root for them, but somehow mm -hmm. he makes you understand them. And um, in a way where I think he, he's good at succeeding at, building empathy between you and what you're reading you know like there's it's hard to it's hard for me to describe really but i think when you read his really good war comics you can't help but kind of be changed afterwards you know like there's some comics that you read that are good and you're like yeah i really enjoyed that man and then there's sometimes those rare times when you read a, a good comic and you're like dang that affected me somehow and i think his best mm -hmm. war comics actually do that right yeah i i wanted to go back to a, a brief point that you mentioned earlier where you talked about how um you know on some level it almost feels like him going to the extremes of just grossness and depravity it almost feels like he intentionally puts those in there on purpose so that he can highlight like the goodness of of people and what's at their core just by contrast you know yeah or or it it's it's almost like it's this idea that sometimes people get put through the worst possible things but the human spirit finds a way to persist nonetheless um yeah i'd be curious to see if that like really is his logic or reasoning behind why he can explain how you know 
a guy's parents both end up dying and he ends up trying to shoot himself in the face but in spite of it and and you know horribly disfiguring himself but in spite of it he finds a way to love life and and all that you know yeah 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 there's something about Ennis's style that I think even when he when he's writing other kinds of comics whether they're even if they're not technically uh, war comics he'll f- find a way to kind of insert that sort of sensibility into those comics anyway like i mentioned he did that on in preacher uh there's some hitman stuff that goes into war story territory and i would even make the argument that his run on punisher max was essentially one gigantic war story maybe not a traditional war story but a war story nonetheless and i think that's why that run on punisher was exceptional mm-hmm. yeah yeah one more question for you albert before we move on from garth ennis but what are your favorite ennis comics yeah that's a hard question to answer if only because even though dude's really prolific and he's got a huge body of work and there's definitely a lot to choose from. I just recently read one of the comics that he's best known for, which is is Punisher Max. And it sort of throws my entire calculus out of whack having read that two or three months ago. But that's funny that you mention it because I think we talked about it in our first episode when we had it in our Marvel top 25. But that's the thing, like even then, I hadn't really read it then because I just didn't own the series. I I might have even been in the process of collecting bits and pieces of the series at the time because I would find some trade paperbacks here and there. And it's a it's a decently long run. It's about ten or eleven trades, I think. Yeah. I think it yeah. was sixty or sixty-five issues. Yeah. And and that's not including you know born or the end or you know any of the other stuff that he's done with the punisher yeah uh, there were a of that. few one shots and there was that barracuda miniseries yeah uh but i will say that if you had asked me this two or three months ago before i read the series in its entirety <sighs> from start to end yeah that must have it, been a great experience man it was good it really i should reread good. it to the point where I would probably, if I had to say right now, that that's probably my favorite thing from him. Um, mm-hmm. But prior to that, I I haven't read his Hitman, which is another work that he's pretty well known for. Um, I did read his Preacher a long, long time ago, and I think I think there I don't really remember much of it now, but there are general impressions that I have of it that were positive. It's like you mentioned at the top of the the episode where there are themes of, you know, friendship and loyalty and yeah, just, Mm -hmm. you know, embedded in the series. And I do think that still, that vibe still rings true, even if I don't, fully remember all of the series it feels like the 
certain bits and pieces that I remember vividly from Preacher are just the gross stuff or the mean-spirited stuff, <laughs> oddly enough. <laughs> like, I don't even really remember... Like, I, I can tell you what the general plot is, but I don't really remember, like, what they did on their adventures, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I do have a vague sense of what the ending of the series was. Um, and, yeah, and that's that's about it. But, yeah, I, I'd say generally that's something that I would put up there, I guess. Uh, if only because I, I can't really think of anything else from his body of work. Like, I, I did find a bunch of his... Um, miniseries and stuff like that so uh, like i i had uh his all-star section eight <laughs> and, and it's a pretty dumb comic but there there are some good moments in that too um i did that's a hitman spinoff yeah yeah it was it's another comic that it's just a mockery reveals, of superheroes yeah it reveals what his personal view of superheroes are and it's it's not necessarily generous towards them <laughs> <laughs> yeah um then there was it's necessarily of, not generous yeah yeah uh i'd also say uh i did pick up some of his uh hanna barbera uh not some of it i got the mini series of uh dastardly and muttley i think that was him too yeah that um, was him it was fine you know uh it, it might be the best dastardly and muttley thing i've ever read <laughs> so there's that <laughs> how many have you read <laughs> exactly <laughs> hey if that's the one and only dastardly and muttley uh you know piece of pop culture that i've consumed from them outside of the cartoon then it did its job of you know not being bad <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough yeah i'm trying to think uh did you ever read his marvel knights punisher run I did then, and that might be more in line with, you know, his more goofy, comedic superhero stuff. Cause it's, it's a dark comedy. I think. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Um. What about his Ghost Rider comics? I do have those. Oddly enough, they were kind of a big deal at the time, just cause it was Garth Ennis writing Ghost Rider, but. I kind of don't really remember them now other than just remembering that Clayton Crane drum. I have a lot of fondness for the second one, Trail of Tears. That was the one that was a Western. It wasn't really about the traditional Ghost Rider or Johnny Blaze or Danny Ketch. Yeah. It was just a Wild West kind of story. And I I think that's another thing that Garth Ennis has an affinity for is writing Westerns. Yeah, yeah. And that was his way of writing a Western set in the frontier era of the marvel universe yeah yeah oh i will say this i guess in terms of things that hold a personal place in my heart there was one story and this is gonna sound kind of messed up but i don't really remember the name of it but it it came out of this anthology anthology series of war stories that he did where it was all under the same banner battlefields i think it was battlefields right or war stories well, I'm, I'll describe it to you and you tell me. I, I think you have a okay. better memory about these things than I do. But it's this one story about this uh, tiger tank division of Nazis. And 
here's the thing. It's a story from their perspective. So it it's it's one where you know, it embodies the spirit of what it means to be in a life or death situation and to like care about your fellow soldiers, but at the same time there's something painfully uncomfortable about it because they're Nazis. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's a war stories issue. Uh, yeah, it was yeah. it was the one with Chris Weston art, right? I I don't really remember it. I just remember the the ending of the story, and it was it was a thing where again, fully cognizant of the fact that they're Nazis, and I don't feel comfortable about that. But there's acts of bravery and acts of loyalty that occur that sort of transcend on a conceptual level. They transcend the reality of them being Nazis. It doesn't forgive them. It's not something that I look at and go, that's my ideal bad. <laughs> Those Nazis were heroes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I couldn't do that at all, but there's something about, their story, which in spite of, again, the gruesome reality of it, that in a vacuum, you, you just kind of acknowledge for the human element of it. Because at the end of the day, they were still human beings. Mm-hmm. So take take with it what you will. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. I don't remember all of the details, but... When you the describe the premise, super yeah, like, yeah, I still remember the ending of that story pretty vividly. I I don't want to. Well, I don't know. Would you care if I gave it away? Would that be a spoiler or? Uh, depends if you want people to seek it out and be surprised by the ending. Well, or if I you just, just think that it's enough for them to know after you tell them. <laughs> well, since I don't remember the specific name of that story, I could just reveal it, and they would not know which story it is <laughs> it was i think it was the first issue of war stories i'm looking it up right now johan's tiger oh okay well now that you've given away the name i feel i wouldn't feel too good about revealing it <laughs> <laughs> okay okay yeah but those that's probably my favorite war story of his and um there was another war story that was simpler but there's something about it that resonated with me as well um i don't remember what it was called again because you know i just took one too many hits to the head as an adult (laughs) it's all the it's all the uh black adam reviews man they've just been destroying your brain cells (laughs) exactly hearing people talk about how great black adam is has just (laughs) diminished the quality of your life yeah but it's a story about how there were these soldiers, I think they were Americans who came across this like mansion or this uh, oh, yeah. villa or something like that, right? And on the surface of it, it seems like a pretty stupid story about these guys just goofing off and messing around, right? But again, it was the a sort of thing where the end of the story, it, it strikes a nerve with you because... You know, it's about these people who are under these circumstances of just horrible and terrible war. And in it all, they defy orders just to have a little bit of normalcy. 
and yeah, there was something about that that you know, it, in that final moment of that story, and I, I guess I'll reveal this one because it's not quite as dramatic or whatever, but from what I remember, in the final moments, their superior officers show up and reprimand them, but, you know, they kind of stand up to the superior officers and just kind of make a point of saying, you know, F you guys, you know, we've we've done our part, we've served our country. I'm actually holding that comic in my hands right now. Yeah, yeah. I have it. Yeah. But yeah. The the final scene is the uh it's I think it's a general actually. Yeah, it's a general. He comes up to the to the troopers after uh, you know, all of this wanton destruction and stuff at the mansion is apparent for everyone to see and the general yeah. says this is what he says, you ignore orders, you ignore the authority of your commanders, you treat army property as your own private plunder. So, can you tell me, Sergeant, what the hell you think gives you the right? And then the next panel is the uh, sergeant of the American troopers who are at the mansion. And he says, General, don't think I can tell you anything. And then there's one final panel where he's just looking dead serious. It's a straight head-on shot of the sergeant. And he says, so why don't you stick your authority up your ass? Yeah, and that's how the story ends. Yeah, but there's something about that that strikes a nerve. Again, it's these guys have done their duty and they're just in a tough situation. And yeah, you you kind of feel for them because they're just yeah maybe there's a a bunch of destruction to this villa or whatever, but at the end of the day, they just wanted to feel like men again, you know? Yeah, it's basically a situation where they've seen so much death and destruction yeah. in their battles. And now that they have this place where they can kind of relax and they're just, you know, they're basically just going ham with their revelry. Yeah. Just drinking all the, all the alcohol that was stored in the cellar. Um, there's all this valuable artwork and stuff, and then they find some women nearby, and it's they're just cavorting and stuff, you know? It's, yeah, yeah. It's just people who are super close to death, and then all of a sudden, they kind of find this place where they can do what they Regain want. some it, of it. <laughs> Humanity. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, it, yeah, that's a pretty interesting comic, and, and that one had art by Dave Gibbons, and mm, he's a mm. pretty dang good artist. Yeah, yeah. But those two stories always... For whatever reason, they were stories that jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but those those are probably my top Ennis stories. Okay, okay. What you got? Yeah, I think for me, Punisher the Max series is still pretty high up there. Uh, I also have a lot of love for his war stories, so. When I say war stories, I don't just mean like his war comics generally, but he had a series at Vertigo called War Stories, which was a series of uh, like giant-sized one-shots. And then a few years after uh, after that, he continued the series at Avatar. I've read some of those Avatar ones, but honestly, I think because the art was pretty middling, I, I don't really remember those comics too well, and I didn't really think 
super highly of them when I did read them. I mean, they were fine war comics. I just didn't think that they were, they didn't reach the heights that the Vertigo war, war stories issues reached. And like the one war story issue that I really like is this one that David Lloyd drew and it's called Nightingale. And that one was about this uh, destroyer uh, that was assigned to escort convoys in uh, World War II. And it's it's basically about these these uh, Navy officers and shipmen who uh, are given orders that put them in unnecessary uh, danger, and then they end up uh, sacrificing themselves to, uh, you know, basically set things right. And I, I don't really remember uh, too many of the specifics of the action off the top of my head, but I just remember how, I don't know, it just felt like a really poetically executed story, despite it being a story about war and chaos and death, but just the the fear of the soldiers and the oppressiveness of being at the sea, you know, there's, that one was a pretty memorable comic, I think. And if, if you can find that one, definitely seek it out. And I think those Vertigo issues were collected in trades. You might be able to find them somewhere. Uh, I also really liked his Battlefield comics. And the one Battlefield story that I would really recommend to people is this story called Dear Billy. That one was pretty interesting because it wasn't directly about a soldier, but it was about uh, a civilian woman who basically met uh, a wounded soldier when he was injured. And I think she was a, I want to say she was a nurse or something. And they had a, a love affair and it's something that just ended in a whole lot of tragedy. Um, yeah, I think that's, I'll just leave it at that. But that one was something that always stood out to me. And it's something that just thinking about it now makes me want to go back and pull it out and reread it. I do remember that one because I think that was the first one of those war stories that you ever gave to me because, you know, us going to a lot of different shows, we find a bunch of different random things. And I think you had already had that issue at some point. Mm -hmm. So I want to say that you found, you know, another copy of it for like a quarter or something. And I remember you passing it off to me. So I do remember that one as well. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to give away too much about it either. But yeah, she was a nurse from what I remember. And you know, some horrible stuff happened to her and it was about how she just couldn't let any of it go. Yeah, exactly. It's a pretty heavy, emotionally wrought kind of story. Yeah. But really powerful as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's also Ennis's run on Hellblazer. I never read his entire run. I read like a good chunk of it, but I've still been trying to collect the entirety of hellblazer like i'm on this quest to get all 300 issues of it i mean uh, you're doing pretty well because we found a bunch of it at just random shows in in all sorts of forms in trade paperbacks and issues it's yeah your 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 collection is a mishmash but yeah it's and decent I, 
you know? Yeah, I'm I'm okay with it being a mishmash because I've, I'm just buying them as cheaply as I can possibly find them. So I've, mm-hmm. there have been a couple of trades that I found for like four bucks that I was like, yeah, I'll just buy the trade since it's that cheap. And then there have been a bunch of issues that I found in quarter bins and stuff. And I think at this point, I don't think I'm missing more than like 20 issues of the entirety of the Vertigo run. Of the, That's great. You know, out of 300 issues. I have, I'd have to check my spreadsheet. But yeah, I have a big chunk of it. The That's majority so of awesome. It. Yeah. I'm, I'm still missing a few random issues of Ennis's run here and there. But a lot of the one-off issues that he did... I remember them being particularly good. I think he's really good at telling those done-in-one kind of stories. But his first Mm. story for Hellblazer was a pretty famous one called Dangerous Habits. And that one was a six-issue arc uh, about Constantine basically cheating the devil after he learned he had terminal cancer. (laughs) So (laughs) it's like the ultimate con game uh, by the ultimate con man. And I remember that one being a particularly great hellblazer comic but yeah I, I think those are probably my favorites of all his work but he is someone whose work i've read a ton of and I'd, I'd probably call him one of the more significant writers of our generation of comics readers mm, i think that's fair yeah very yeah. prolific guy yeah and his popularity you know again has just it's maintained a level of consistency that I don't think most people have have the luxury of having. Um, if anything, as his career has progressed, he's probably gotten more well-known, possibly. I mean, his work has... His work is getting more well-known because yeah, Future exactly. and The Boys had big TV shows. I don't know yeah. if people know his name necessarily, but at least they know... Yeah, his shows. I feel like I can go based on his work and talk to someone who doesn't know comics, and I can mention the boys, and it's you know it's an anchor point for them to get an understanding of what it is that they're you know what what it is that they're uh, experiencing or or what what they're about to enter, um, mm-hmm. which is. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's good for him. I'm glad that he's getting paid and he's getting this level of notoriety. Um, I'm kind of curious to see what's going to happen now because, you know, with the explosion of the boys, they're they're basically building a boys universe all the way all 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 the way over there at Amazon because I think there are like quite a few spinoffs. Out. Oh really? Oh, I didn't. I didn't realize that. Yeah, like there was a cartoon special, I think, or something, and uh, and then they're they're doing, yeah. Uh, I want to say that one of the spinoffs is like, a, almost like a Teen Titans version of the boys, where <laughs> it's it's like about teenage superheroes or something like that. Teenage kicks. I don't know, man. I, I really I remember know. one of the earlier stories in The Boys was about this Teen Titans kind of group and uh that was that was pretty gross. <laughs> well, yeah. Do you remember that I, one? Did you read that one? I haven't read The Boys actually. Well, oh, okay. again, which is to go back to what I was saying, it's just 
Yeah, he's I mean, suffice these... to say that that teenage superhero team was involved in committing a lot of gang rape. That's pretty terrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, w- I wonder if they're going to keep that for the show. I want to say that they'll probably find a way to sanitize it, but I don't even know what a sanitized version of that looks like. <laughs> Quite honestly. I am kind of curious to see, with his name being passed around, um, you know, because it's attached to this behemoth, like what, what, if anything, he might try to uh, popularize next. Um, you know, uh, I think Seth Rogen is a huge fan of Preacher and a huge fan of his work, so mm-hmm. he's one of the people that's involved in the production company that put preacher on television and put the boys on television so uh, i thought of another thing of his that's getting adapted what's that did you hear that they're making a noonan's tv series i don't even know what that is noonan's bar was uh the bar that was featured in hitman and i haven't watched the harley quinn cartoon but apparently noonan's bar is a thing in the harley quinn show and I guess okay. it's getting its own spin-off. Okay. I, I guess see, like that's a thing. I felt, that like, he... I felt like your interest disappeared as soon as I mentioned Harley Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, you know, I'm I've never walked inside of a hot topic, but <laughs> I know that I don't want to be there. <laughs> um fair. I did want to mention one other thing uh, that I did read that he worked on, which was A Walk Through Hell, which was by him. And um, uh, the artist was, uh, he follows us on Instagram. He's he's a pretty cool dude. Yeah, Gran Suzuka, who worked on Why Why the Last Man and a bunch of other stuff. But they worked on that together. That's another one that might be a little too dark and a little... I think it was his attempt to do like I want to say like a horror story, but the the horror about it was just it, it's a comic that is very much mired in post twenty sixteen in the reality of a post twenty sixteen world where you know after a post Trump election, mm-hmm. and it's just something that views the world through that lens and just really depicts the world and as as this really ugly place um yeah it's a pretty unnerving book i'd say it, it's something where after i read it i really needed to think about what it was that i just read because it was kind of dense with symbolism and commentary but i couldn't really even to this day, like I have a general gist of what he was trying to say, but I think I'd have to do multiple reads in order to like fully suss out what the core, what's at the core of it. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But you know, uh, Goran Sutska is he's a great artist, and you know we're we're always glad uh, that he follows us on our Instagram. Yeah, definitely. Hey, I was looking up Dangerous Habits online, and you want to hear a funny tidbit that I just learned? Sure, shoot. 
the artist of Dangerous Habits was a guy named Will Simpson. And I've read some of his other comics. He did some other stuff with Garth Ennis, like more issues of Hellblazer and uh, uh, Batman, Legends of the Dark Knight story. But apparently a big chunk of his career, his recent career, has been a storyboard artist and a concept artist for Game of Thrones. Oh, wow. Yeah, he designed the White Walkers and all of the weapons in the show. Good for him, man. Like, it's always good to see, to hear, like, you know, people still working, uh, especially names that just kind of disappear. Yeah. Um, comics is a fickle industry, so I don't know about you, but when whenever a certain name disappears from from comics, my mind goes to the grimmest place possible. Well, not the grimmest place possible. The grimmest place possible would be death, but, um, but my mind goes to a place where it's like, oh, this person doesn't get to work in comics anymore and they just kind of disappear off the face of the earth. But, you know, whenever I find out that they end up doing something where they're still working and, you know, succeeding at it, in spite of the fact that it's not in comics, it's like, you know what? Good for you, man. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cause he was someone whose name I've seen in quite a few nineties comics. I don't think he ever had any real extended runs other than on Hellblazer. But I would just see his name on different things in the 90s, like different Vertigo comics doing fill-ins here and there or whatever. But, uh, you know, for the past couple decades, I have no idea what happened to him. And I, I just looked him up online on Wikipedia. And, yeah, he's been doing a good amount of stuff for film and television. Yeah, I'd, I'd much rather hear a story about that kind of success than you know someone who's struggling to survive yeah exactly yeah yeah so for a second i braced myself when you when you were gonna tell when you mentioned when you asked what he'd been doing up up to this (laughs) point yeah i i thought you were gonna reveal something bad i was like something tragic (laughs) Yeah. yeah no not something tragic uh i was like has he been harassing people? Or oh, okay. Something? No, nothing <laughs> that's where like my that. My mind went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, did he do something? Uh oh. <laughs> Anytime, like, I get set up for one of these where it's like, hey, you know, whatever happened to this one guy? That's that's usually where my mind goes now. Who did he touch? And in what in what capacity? <laughs> <laughs> understandable. Understandable. Uh, yeah. All right. That's a. A lot we've just said about Garth Ennis. I want to. I do want to touch on the other members of the creative team. Of course, uh, Garan Parlov did pencils and inks for My War Gone By, and he's an artist I have a good amount of respect for. Uh, in terms of the stuff of his that I've read, I know he did a good chunk of Ennis's Punisher series, the Max series. He did a few of the story arcs there, and he also did that barracuda miniseries he also did a few issues a few fill-in issues of why the last man he's done starlight that was the the other big one starlight with mark miller which is probably my favorite uh, of garan parlov's work and one of my favorite miller comics as well but do you have any thoughts or observations about garan parlov's style or do you have any 
favorite works of his? Um, <clears throat> I'd say in terms of observations, I don't think he draws in a conventional uh, comic booky style. There's a gritty realism to it. It's not photorealistic or anything, but, you know, uh, he definitely has an ability to draw fantastic things because uh, you mentioned he drew Starlight. So he, you know, that's a sci-fi adventure right there. But I do like... I guess some people would describe his art as having a sketchy quality. And I do, I don't know if that's something that appeals to a lot of people or not, but I personally like it. It's, it's not the kind of sketchiness that I would associate with like, like the bad kind of sketchy, which is something that just looks unfinished. Yeah, exactly. Right. I was thinking something like, David Fincher's uh, David Finch or something like that, or the '90s where they just do a bunch of cross hatching or whatever, and it's just kind of ugly. Like it's it's more intentional than that. It's better looking than that. It's mm -hmm. it's yeah, like it's not a clean look, but I do think it fits for something like Fury My War Gone By. Um, it just adds a layer of grit to it that. Yeah, that that just adds more to the feeling of just how I guess how painful their world is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Because the the one thing that I can say, especially as it applies to Fury, my war gone by, is like I love the way that he draws Fury. As even though as the story starts out, he's already. He's not necessarily young, but he's already pretty seasoned. You can't you can't really tell his age. And even though the story as it progresses goes over the course of decades, like you can tell that he's getting older, but the the wounds and the 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 sketchiness of it is always there and it always just makes him look like he's just he's just a grizzled dude. He has seen some stuff, you know. Yeah. And it's like, even when he's an older guy, you still wouldn't want to mess with him. Exactly, exactly. It's a good look that, that works for him. And the other interesting thing is, you know, uh, well, okay. I mean, we'll probably talk about it if it comes up again, but I'll, I'll just mention it here. Um, like, as I mentioned, this is a story that takes place over the course of decades. So you do watch the people around him age, even though... Mm -hmm he's sort of perpetually this grizzled old man. Um, like, I forget the woman's name. Um, Shirley? Shirley, yeah. Like, you, you can see her progression from this vibrant young woman to just this spent old, like, broken uh, uh, individual by the end of the story and just the toll that their decisions have made on them. And yeah, that that's, he's capable of drawing like her as this young, beautiful woman. But again, that sketchy quality just compounds the, the deterioration of her soul and her body over the years, you know? Mm -hmm. 
So I do think that's a, a like one of the things that I liked about his art, um, you know, in in my war gone by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make makes sense. I see, I see those same qualities in there too. Mm-hmm. I was also gonna say that his art definitely feels like it's more influenced by European comics. When you compare it to something like Mobius, you can see a lot of influence there, as well as uh, other like Franco-Belgian comics, whose I don't necessarily know names of the artists, but when I look at the art, that's what I recognize. That kind of yeah. quality is what I recognize in in uh, Parlov's art, where he's able to convey that sense of realism even though i think when you look at his art it's not necessarily realistic like the people are proportionate and stuff for the most part with a, maybe a few exceptions here and there but i think it's just how consistent everything is where uh like just from the the scenery the the backgrounds the clothing the facial expressions and the body language and, and acting like all mm. of that is so convincing it just feels uh it feels realistic you know like you can believe in this reality that he's concocted with his with his lines yeah i'm looking at some stuff here at the end of the book you do see um you know, some of the sketches that he did and some of the storyboarding. Like, his panel-to-panel storytelling is pretty good, too. I think there's definitely a cinematic quality to it. And and I don't mean necessarily even in the action scenes, but just in terms of the talking heads and the people and how they communicate with one another. Yeah. Like, I'm looking at this one panel towards the end here where Nick Fury is at the Vietnam uh, Memorial and he's meeting someone, uh, an old adversary, really. And the way that he draws this this moment play out is you're seeing it, there's a lot of focus on the things around him. You know, there's the 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 top images of the one of the statues at the memorial, and then you see the two of them facing each other, and the guy extends his hand out to Fury and. You're just watching this whole thing play out in four panels, and mm-hmm. you can tell just how how he doesn't really know how to respond to this. Uh, he doesn't even he's he's really uncertain about his feelings because again, this is a guy he he he's he for all intents and purposes maybe not hates, but he he's tried to kill this guy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe and, another element that adds to the cinematic quality of the art especially in this comic is because so much of it is just uh, horizontal panels Mm -hmm. i've noticed that garth ennis likes doing that for certain of his comics like he doesn't do that in all of his comics but i noticed it a lot in punisher max where he kind of eschews the use of uh you know like panels that are side by side or you know he doesn't really use the nine panel grid or anything but a lot of the pages are just laid out with maybe four panels or five panels and they're all horizontal and i I think Mm. that's 
it, it definitely adds a specific type of rhythm to the experience. Yeah. And it's not yeah. it's not like every page follows that horizontal panel layout. There are certain scenes here and there where they break that formula and they do have panels that are side by side. Like yeah. two rectangular panels next to each other or, you know, splash pages or a page where you'll have like one horizontal panel take up one third of the page and then the mm -hmm. second mm -hmm. panel is the other two thirds. Yeah. So there is some rhythmic variation there, but if you pay attention to it, there's a lot of pages that are just four panels, four horizontal panels or five horizontal panels. Yeah. And even when it's just like one person's head talking, you know, it'll still be a horizontal panel. So mm. it's pretty interesting to consider how that affects the, the rhythm and pacing of the reading experience. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm flipping through the book right now and you totally see how many pages there are where you get that. It, it's just something you see repeated over and over again. Mm -hmm. And you're right, it does make for a pretty, uh, you know, I'm going to say it again, but just that cinematic sort of reading experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, while we're on the topic of artists, uh, I also did want to mention the covers for each of the individual issues. They're done by Dave Johnson. Mm -hmm. And he's someone who... I don't know if we, I feel like we've mentioned, we, we've had to have mentioned him at least once or twice on this podcast, but he's someone mostly known for doing covers. Uh, he's probably best well known for doing 100 Bullets. Uh, that's the thing that sort of put him on the spot. And he's, he's just terrific. He's a dude who has a real sense of style and flair, and all of his covers just look like paintings. And... Yeah, like he's uh he puts a lot of thought into the design of his covers. Yeah, exactly. They look like posters. Exactly, exactly. But so, he also does a good job of telling a story with his covers too. Like they're not all just they're not just pretty pictures, but there's there's like meaning behind the symbolism that he chooses to use and it goes with the contents of the issue inside, you know? Yeah, for sure. And that's that's something I appreciate because a, a lot of covers, at least maybe not so much anymore, but there was definitely a period of time when a lot of covers were just action poses or something. Yeah, they were just pinups, you know, like they there wasn't really a story being told on the cover or yeah. anything to really ponder or examine. It's like Spider-Man's doing a backflip. Yep. Or, or Spider-Man swinging between some skyscrapers again. Yeah. But yeah, his 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 covers are the the thing that wows me about it is it's it doesn't feel like it's a one-off sort of thing either cuz it literally feels like for the hundreds and hundreds of covers that he's drawn each one is a pretty unique experience in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Like you can really just stop and look at each one of his covers and marvel at them um and just appreciate what what's being drawn there yeah so it's it's like you said it he he's not like other cover artists who who are just giving you like a, a generic quote, action pose cool picture right yeah yeah exactly exactly all right
No love for the colorist. Uh, well, what have you got to say? I, uh, yeah. What are your thoughts? On Lee Luridge? I do like his work. He's somebody who's st- uh, whose colors I've seen in quite a lot of comics. He did quite a bit of Vertigo stuff in the 2000s or so. Like, I know he he did a good chunk of Fables towards the, I think the, not from the beginning necessarily, but I, I think towards the later portion of the run. I forget exactly which issues, but I remember seeing his work there. Uh, he did Gotham Central, which was a pretty big one for me. Uh, the Good Asian, which is a recent series from... Uh, I'm going to butcher the dude's name, but it's by this guy named Pornsack Pichoshote. I, I don't even think I pronounce it right, but it's an image book, a crime comic that I really liked, and it was a recent one. Uh, one in Eisner... Um, that one also had covers by Dave Johnson. It's it's the story about it's a story a crime story about uh, basically the first or fictional story about the first uh, Asian American detective. Uh, you mean it wasn't Charlie Chan? <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> <laughs> no, you should check it out though, man. That's something when the hardcover it's comes out, list. I'm definitely gonna buy it. It's it's something where I didn't really know anything about it, and maybe it's a thing where, you know, as someone who supports the Asian, uh, you know, community and who supports, uh, you know, Asian representation, you know, I'll admit it. <laughs> Even though I didn't really know anything about it, I was willing. I I was willing to go out of my way and check it out at some point, which I still intend to do. If only to build my own opinion on 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 the subject, but hearing that you read it and that you have good thoughts mm-hmm. and good uh, things to say about it, that just encourages me more. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely gonna buy the hardcover. I borrowed the paperbacks from the library, but I need the hardcover for my own personal collection. Nice, dope. The letterer of my war gone by is Rob Steen. I don't really know too much about his other comics. I mean, he's just, to be honest, I think I've seen his name on other stuff, but I don't really have any, you know, strong impressions or anything, which I hope he takes as a compliment because he did a fine job lettering it. <laughs> you know, it's like one of those things where if 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 people don't realize, if people don't notice the lettering it's not necessarily always a, a bad thing right like sometimes people notice lettering when it's when it's done poorly and mm-hmm. it definitely wasn't done poorly so yeah solid yeah. work no i i get what you're saying it's it's like you said right it's this might be a harsh thing to say but to some degree it's a situation where if you're doing your job right, then no one really notices. Mm-hmm. And and I know there are people who want to hear, well, if I'm doing my job well, if I'm doing my job right, I want people to notice because it's good. And there are certain qualities and aspects of comics or even just in life where 
you know, things happen on a daily basis and they happen the way that they're supposed to. And we don't necessarily pay that much mind or attention to the details behind what goes on to, you know, make the trains run on time or to make sure that when you step out of your house, you don't get, you know, a chunk of de debris that hits you on the head or something. Look, the way I see it, letterers are like offensive linemen in the NFL. People don't usually talk about the offensive line unless they give up a sack, and that's bad, right? Yeah, yeah. But usually if if the announcers don't say your name, it just means that you're playing solidly. Yeah. But occasionally, sometimes, if you're one of the top offensive linemen and you're just playing out of your mind, people will notice because you're mauling the people, you know, they're, you're mauling <laughs> the defender. You're destroying people and blowing people up when you're run blocking or you're preventing the superstar pass rusher on the other team from hurrying your quarterback and you make a big difference, you know, people will notice that too. Yeah. Right? And yeah. like that, that's kind of the difference between a normal letterer who is just your standard solid offensive lineman and somebody like Todd Klein, who's like, you know, just the best at what he does. And, and you're going to notice that he's great at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, no, no disrespect to um, the letterer here, but he did a fine job and we, we have nothing but respect for the work that he does. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, he he's a role player, man, and that's sometimes that's what you need is you need a role player. So ain't nothing wrong exactly. with that. Exactly. There's nothing to be ashamed of there. Exactly. Yeah. And then the editors were Sebastian Gurner and Nick Lowe. I don't really have too many things to say about Nick Lowe. Uh, I know he's. I think he's still at Marvel. I think he's uh, like an executive ed editor or something now, and I, he's definitely uh, edited a lot of. Uh, pretty notable Marvel books over the, I don't know, past 15, 20 years or something, like a bunch of the Ultimate Comics. He's a big uh, name over there. Yeah. I think in terms of his connection with Ennis, uh, I'm pretty sure he edited Punisher Born. I uh, don't remember if he did the rest of the ongoing series or not. But uh, Sebastian Gurner is somebody who is now the editor-in-chief at TKO. And oh. yeah, and one of TKO's launch books was a Garth Ennis war comic called Sarah. Mm. So I'm guessing that uh, his connection with Ennis probably helped facilitate and help make that happen, you know? Yeah, actually, in November of this month, of, of uh, this year, they are going to be releasing that Sarah comic as a hardcover, a deluxe hard, quote unquote, deluxe hardcover. So you know, just a little bit of a little bit of extra Garth Ennis news to put out there since this is a a Garth Ennis heavy episode. I or you know, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And the, Sarah was a great comic too. I I ended up buying the paperback edition of it pretty early on in the pandemic, and yeah, I I enjoyed it a whole lot. That's definitely pretty high up there in terms of my favorite Ennis comics. Mm. Yeah. All right. 
you ready to talk about my war gone by? Let's do it. Let's do it to it. All right. So the series is broken up into four three-issue arcs with a one-issue epilogue, hence the 13 issues. Uh, before we break it down, I was wondering if you had any overall general thoughts uh, about it or if you wanted to talk about anything that you might have noticed rereading it this time around versus your first time reading it um yeah i yeah i guess one of the things that i noticed this time around is and this isn't really a super fully formed idea it it in fact it was something that i i was thinking about pretty late one night and so you know my my head might have been in there's a chance it could have been you know uh a thought that i had while i was in a fog so it might not even be entirely uh accurate but i do feel like in in my first reading of it it felt like it was a book that was about war and about how um you know how uh, how it's it just has this corrosive effect not on just not just on you uh the individual who is embroiled in the war but on all levels of society right because mm -hmm. a war can't help but drag every man woman and child into it whether they are uh victims in the direct conflict or whether uh they are family members or people in their community that are drawn into it and i that much was uh pretty apparent but the thing that i noticed this time around was it really was a comic that to me felt like it, it felt like one of the themes of it was the idea of choices and hmm. yeah like so I, I i feel like it's worth mentioning but prior to to reading this earlier this month or maybe even like two months two or three months ago i had just finished reading his garth ennis's punisher that we mentioned the uh marvel max series and that was the first time i'd ever read that in its entirety and it's it's interesting reading that and putting it in comparison to to fury my war gone by because there are some characters that show up in there that he repurposes in this series mm -hmm. you know so it's i i don't i couldn't say for sure whether they exist in the same universe with one another but it, it feels like they could. If, if, yeah, it, it feels like they could. But that being said, um, it yeah, what, what I was going to say was that being said, it feels like with The Punisher, when Garth Ennis wrote The Punisher, he wrote a man who embodied war. It wasn't really a choice uh, because that version of the Punisher was someone who there's a line in 
my in my war gone by where he talks about the punisher uh frank castle actually and he says i don't i don't have it in front of me but he basically says that for some people like that act of violence is they're the kind of people that make the world right with it and and that's essentially what the punisher is he's he's almost an unthinking unfeeling machine in that for him the answer really is that simple and that's just the recurring theme of that story is what happens when you're just the embodiment of of hostility and war mm -hmm. but with fury my war gone by it really feels like this is a guy who who chose this life and who with every passing day continues to choose it in spite of the possibility potential of any other option and even though even though war and whatever he feelings he gets out of it is something that ends up damaging him and the people around him he can't help but choose it and and that's what makes him a guy who is addicted to war so yeah um and and there are other scenes in it where you know you look at the choices that other people make and just how their lives are affected um like surely uh, uh well i guess are we going to go into spoilers now or sure full spoiler mode now okay spoiler <laughs> mode activate <laughs> <laughs> but she's a character who who throughout the course of her life chooses i guess what's most convenient right and w once you get towards the end you really see just how those choices build upon each other and have just led her to a pretty crappy place in her life like the the man that she marries because he has uh you know resources and because he has uh influence the man that he marries she marries uh ends up being completely uh non-committed to her and absolutely just doesn't care for her at all she's mm -hmm. just there as just basically arm candy for for the world to see but their their marriage is pretty loveless and even in spite of the fact that they are in a loveless marriage she she can't stand the thought of her being in this relationship where uh senator mccluskey i think that's how you pronounce it um he ends up basically inviting his whore into their house to live with them and he beds her nightly like the the disrespect of it all is just too much for her to bear yeah and, and yeah once you get to the end of it there's this heartbreaking moment where one of the characters hatherly is over there and he's he's on his deathbed and you know she's telling him like what were my choices in life i i i had i could have 
I went with the guy who had money, influence, and power, or I could have gone with the other guy who was addic- so addicted to war that, you know, he was barely ever there. There was nothing there for us except for uh, passionate, hot, passionate lovemaking, right? And mm-hmm. this guy, Hatherly, who who's maybe the one decent human being in this entire book. Yeah. He, he looks at her and he goes, you know, I was always kind of fond of you. And just by saying that, he just, he just wrecks this woman. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, and, and to the point where towards the end, she's, she's just drinking and she's all liquored up. And she goes, I just found out today I could have been with a good man. And, there's something about that line. It just hurts. It's just, you know, a knife twist to the heart. But Yeah. And and Hatherley's another example where he's a dude who he believed he's he's like a believer in the sense that all of the rhetoric around war and uh you know God and country and all the all the all the stuff, all the noble stuff that people you know, go to war for, right? The, the the jingoistic stuff. Like, this guy believed it with his sincerity, but the second that he saw, like, the ugly truth behind it, this was a guy who chose to step back from all that. And he he ends up having probably the most normal life out of all these all these characters yeah he was well adjusted you know like he wasn't yeah addicted to war but he was still a soldier yeah he did the best that he could yeah under, under the circumstances yeah exactly. but i will say i will say that there was something <laughs> there was something about that ending where you know uh, when he's on his deathbed and he he's had a wife at this point and he's had a bunch of grandkids and all that for him to tell this lady that oh i've always been fond of you that there was something about that that doesn't quite square for me but he sure what he's his exact quote is i always thought you were lovely uh okay yeah but still it's just weird to me because it's like well you had a good life man yeah you married the woman that you loved you had a bunch of kids uh I don't know if those two ideas are contradictory to one another or not, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't... When I read that scene, I didn't read it as him saying, oh, yeah, you and me could have been together, (laughs) had a wonderful life. It was more just him trying to... I I think it was him trying to cheer her up because she thought that she had just been trapped with those two choices right with mccuskey or fury and here he is telling her well the world's not actually as closed off as you thought it was you know and yeah if you just kind of like paid more attention then things possibly could have been different that's a more generous interpretation that doesn't have him emotionally cheating on his wife so yeah I'll yeah. take that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's definitely how I read it because I don't think there's okay. really anything in the book to to indicate yeah, there, that Hathor there really has that in him, you know? Because there there the, isn't this moment between the two of them where they're like, 
oh, I could have been with her, but she had eye, she was making googly eyes at Nick Fury the whole time. So I guess I'm just gonna marry this other lady because hey, gives yeah. the breaks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I think it fits with his characterization even from the from the very beginning uh, because the first time he meets Fury in that opening issue, they have that conversation out outside in the cafe or the or, or the bar or whatever you call it uh-huh. and they're talking about the flag right which uh goes into the ending which it's a pretty clever uh bookend by the way i think yeah, because yeah. this in issue one when they have that conversation it cuts it off yeah off yeah they're, they're, they're talking about the flag and and hatherley asked fury uh, as they sit across the street from like the embassy american embassy or something he asked, may I ask you, Colonel, do you believe that means anything at all? Referring to the flag. And Fury says, I believe it should. What does it mean to you, Hatherly? And then the next panel is Hatherly just giving him this really genuine smile. And he says, I think you're something of a cynic, Colonel Fury, or you're doing your best to be one. I'm not. So I'm going to respectfully suggest that we refrain from wasting each other's time. Fair enough. And Fury takes a drink and says, Sure. And Hatherly replies, you wouldn't believe me if I told you anyway. And then there's a pause and a beat. And then Fury says, try me. And then when you flip the page, it goes to inside the the bar, which is where Shirley is sitting and getting hit on by these guys. But the interesting thing about that panel is that the in the background, you can still see Hatherly and Fury sitting at the table outside having a drink so it's like they're having that they're continuing that conversation in the background of the same scene we've just transitioned to the interior um which is one of those things that if you're reading it for the first time you don't necessarily think too much about it but then once you get to the last issue and it's the epilogue and uh hatherly has passed away at this point and his granddaughter has a conversation with Nick Fury. And that's when he remembers the conversation for the reader. Yeah. And it's the final scene of the entire book. And it's a pretty powerful moment, man. Yeah. Yeah, th- that was something reading it this time around that I actually didn't catch the first time that they had circled back to that point. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not like it was subtle or anything either. Like if you really paid attention it was there but yeah i feel like that's something that lands really well when you read it all in one sitting if you're reading it month to month there's a chance you're not going to remember something you read over a year ago exactly exactly it's most effective in one sit in in one sitting like you said yeah but yeah do you want to go into the uh discussion of the various just uh regions where the story takes place because it is something where the setting is a pretty big part of the story and Mm -hmm. it's it's a comic that is very steeped in real american history now the accuracy of that history you know it's it's debatable because there are a lot of different perspectives there there are certain things that are obviously just fact but um there are also takes on on these actual historical events that could be interpreted differently. That's something that I acknowledge. Um, yeah, 
it's it's it is important to the story and i do think that the takes that they do have on these historical events do say they they are strung together in a way that do make a cohesive statement that they make a cohesive overall statement on on the core theme of the 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 book itself Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah so the well i'll just go real quick but uh it it starts out with them in french indochina and then it goes to cuba and the bay of pigs and then it goes back to the vietnam uh for america's involvement in the vietnam war and then it goes to nicaragua and the sandinistas and this is you know the the timeline that it follows and these are all it's interesting that these are the four locations and points in the story that they picked because these are all just areas of great shame and defeat for America in the post-World War II era, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it says something that these are the set pieces for this particular war story. Um, you know, often whenever we get these types of war stories, a lot of the times you go back to places where it's like, yeah, that was that was us at our height. We were just kicking butt and taking names and we were just unstoppable. We're we're the guys that saved the world. And Yeah, yeah. Like World War II. Yeah, and it's it's a it's obviously a reason why we keep going back to that, why it's still something a point of great pride for us as a country. But for them to pick these settings for fury uh they're just in in the post-world war ii era uh, i think especially if you look at it as uh, this story as a statement on war itself it is something that by looking at the failures and defeats it paints this picture of how did we get from there to here you know and sitting here in 2022 I do think that that is something that is pretty poignant because we're at a point in this country, especially where, you know, faith in the government, faith in our leaders, it's, it's at a pretty low point. And even when I think to myself, it's hard to imagine it getting even lower, like, don't underestimate always, humanity. Yeah, exactly. There's always a new low. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it really does feel like this isn't quite, you know, uh, a roadmap to that, but in a broad brushstrokes kind of way, it kind of is also. Because um, if you think about the post-World War II era coming out of World War II as being, you know, the saviors of the world, at, at least that's how we market that entire situation. Um, and and to squander all that goodwill with tragedy after tragedy and, you know, war crime after war crime, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's hard to not imagine uh, us being in a place where we're just all so skeptical of, of everything. It's, 
Yeah. It's rough. Yeah. Yeah. And I think especially the skepticism in American military intervention. Yeah. That's because like all of these conflicts that are uh, covered in the story. When you think about what happened in real life, like none of those conflicts was a point of pride for most Americans. Yeah. They usually ended up with us losing a lot of young people a lot of treasure, you know, just dedicating a lot of blood to to pretty dubious uh, intent. Uh, the Mainly just to stop the commies from taking more governments, I guess. Yeah. Well, but even then, like, when you, when people look at it from a pretty simplistic view of we just have to stop the quote-unquote evil empire, yeah, maybe that's sufficient, but the point of the book was when we got down to the nitty-gritty, like, a lot of these people, the people that we were fighting, were just, they were just fighting us because we were there. Yeah. You know? and, like, they they weren't necessarily ideologically inclined to whatever the communists were thinking or the Sandinistas or whoever, like, all they knew was somebody was in their country trying to dictate terms to them. And yeah, and, and it's just something that we've seen over and over again uh, in history. And, and it's hard to look at that. Like, even now, when we've got something like Ukraine going on, it, you would think that it's as simple as these guys are you know, the Russians are going in there and we need to stop them because they're upending their way of life. But that skepticism is so deeply rooted in us that there are people who are finding ways to undermine even that. It's it's kind of ridiculous. You mean Americans who support Russia in their invasion? Uh, is that what you're referring to? Or what do you I mean? I guess so. Like, I, I guess so. I, I think the best way that I could put it is there are people who are, I guess, more isolationist. Is, isolationistic? I don't know. Um, yeah, like there, there's even talks now of how, you know, the there's a chance that the feelings towards, uh, you know, military support out there is beginning to sour because... At the end of the day, some people look at it and it's like, well, what what's really our stake in this? You know, why are we spending our treasure for that? Yeah. So, anyways. Uh, it's a complicated question with a complicated answer, man. Yeah, it, it really is. Or I don't even think, I don't even know if there is an answer, but it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. But Kind of beyond yeah. the scope of this podcast, probably. It is. It is. We're just two guys. We're not political we're, scientists. We're talking about a cartoon character. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot simpler. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that the message being applied to this book, again, I'm I'm not necessarily saying it's an answer to it, but I do think it's an outlook on, you know, military intervention throughout the years and yeah. just how we got to a place where our attitudes have 
haven't become soured to it, right? Um, again, like I was mentioning, like we're not even, it's not even necessarily a thing about like Ukraine, but I, I think the if you think back to you know the classic World War Two era, it, it's it's this thing where we still had enough national pride where once we established who the you know the enemies were the people could unite right yeah we don't even do that now like yeah like you know uh, say what you will of biden but you know his support uh if you compare it to the rest of the world for ukraine uh you know giving them the resources necessary to do what they can like that has done nothing to ingratiate himself towards certain sectors of the population. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but again, back to just the comic aspect of it. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that it's interesting to me that, well, let me, let me put it this way. Did you think it was kind of funny that Fury throughout the course of the book, as a dude who they're constantly talking about as, you know, just this legendary dude who's just the best of the best. Yeah, a war hero. Yeah, right? Like, there's a reason that he is where he is in his military career. But there's something funny about how for each of these regions, every time we see him, it's just kind of a massive cluster, cluster F, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. I think his reputation goes back to his backstory. That's not really uh, delved into in detail in this story, but I think is alluded to with his World War II experience. Mm. And the one of the other things I, I do want to mention about this comic is that it doesn't really occur in the marvel universe and outside of those references to frank castle or barracuda it really isn't marvel centric at all i mean there's no it really isn't yeah there's no shield or hydra or anything like that uh if no this superheroes. Was, if this was a comic that took place in the main mcu we would have seen the x-men come here and they would have just butchered the Viet Cong. <laughs> <laughs> Wolverine would have been like, oh yeah, bub. <laughs> the Hulk could have assassinated Castro. <laughs> but now the thing I want with... to see that comment. <laughs> But the thing with my war gone by is that I I still think there's some element of it that tries to hold true to the kind of the core of Nick Fury, which is that he's a World War II veteran and he's also this spy kind of guy who's really and I think in the mainstream Marvel universe he's regarded as a super spy and a you know a master of espionage and, and that kind of stuff. He's and, like the American James Bond. Yeah, exactly. Like, maybe not quite as... I, I have no r- other way to put it, but 
not quite as British. <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe use that as a stand-in for like charming or whatever. But <laughs> but you know whatever the American equivalent is, which is kind of kind, kind of, of rugged, roguish. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Rugged. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in, in this comic, he's just. It seems like he's an operative of the CIA, and he still got his hands involved with like intelligence and spook stuff maybe not to the degree that he would be in the 616 but he doesn't have a jetpack he doesn't have a jetpack you know it's all very grounded and and realistic in this story but yeah i i still think that because this is essentially a really long cold war story it it helps with its portrayal like its portrayal of fury uh is is accurate in the sense that he's still this guy who uh, isn't necessarily always on the front lines, even though he's engaged in battle as much as possible in the story arcs here. Yeah. But you do get the sense that when he's not fighting, he's still doing other stuff to either prepare for the next fight or... He's fighting somebody you know, that we just, you know, we don't really see necessarily. But he, it doesn't look like he's just twiddling his thumbs in the years between each conflict, you know? Mm. It truly feels like he just keeps himself busy. And we're only seeing snippets of his life uh, during these peak moments in the Cold War. So I, I, th- I think with the first story set in French Indochina, we get a, a good sense of just where he's at in the wake of World War II. And his his uh, personality is already pretty hardened at this point. Uh, and maybe it is because of the things that he saw in World War II. But a few minutes ago, we were making that contrast between him and Hatherley, who he meets in the first issue. And Hatherley is this guy who, he's definitely not a cynic. Uh, yeah. And he's, I guess he's an idealist. And then, this first story is kind of about the, uh, I mean, it, it, it's about the conflict in French Indochina, but it's also about this loss of innocence for yeah. Hatherley too, because what they discover is that the French forces, uh, because I guess because they just need more soldiers or people with fighting experience, they've got this, <laughs> they've got this Nazi <laughs> on their side yeah. who helps them train the local soldiers that are on their side, you know? And then, uh, you know, Hatherley realizes that this guy's not just a former German soldier. He's like a straight up Nazi who, who, yeah. who has no, oh. he's got no compunctions about, about all the Jews that he killed in the war or whatever, you know? And it just kind of like shocks Hatherley to his core because from his point of view, like why, why are the people that we're fighting alongside recruiting Nazis? <laughs> what is this? Yeah. Yeah. The very last page of that uh of that first issue is him just going, What? <laughs> what yeah. you see you just get a close up of his face when he finds out that this guy, like you said, is a straight up Nazi and he's just shocked. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then it gets to the point where it bothers him so much that, like, later on, after they leave the base, he actually goes back to the base 
by himself just to pick yeah. a fight with this Nazi, and the dude just messes him up. Yeah. But then later and on, they're engaged the in a he knows real fight. He's gonna lose too. <laughs> yeah, but it's just the right. principle of it because exactly. he can't stand Nazis. Yeah. And then later on, when they get into this big battle uh, against enemy forces, Hatherly gets pretty messed up, and somehow, fighting alongside this Nazi, the Nazi respects him now that he, he they've shed blood on the same side. And then, yeah. like, it just leaves Hatherly in this place where he's talking to Fury, and he's like, he has no idea there's anything wrong with him, does he? What kind of men are we fighting beside? And then that scene ends with Fury saying, you know, Hatherly, it might be time we talked about the facts of life. And it's just this grim scene uh, where they're surrounded by a bunch of other wounded soldiers in the and the smoke and the dying embers of this massive battle just a really intense portrayal of this loss of idealism in a battlefield. I think that's some pretty impactful storytelling right there. Yeah, yeah. It tells you right off the get-go, um, you know, the tone that's established here in, in the story. You know, it, it only it only gets darker from here on out. Yeah. I uh, I wanted to discuss a little bit about the the setting here for you know what's going on in quote unquote French Indochina mm -hmm. so this was something that I I had heard of in the past so but I didn't really I don't really have like the full details about it but what I do remember is in the days after World War II uh, the French you know, it was the World War II signaled the end of imperial imperialism as we knew it, right? So the old uh, European powers that used to have uh, empires all over the world, yeah, that that entire situation got unsettled by the end of World War II, and in the aftermath of World War II, they were clinging on to whatever colonies that they could. Vietnam being one of uh, the colonies of uh, the French Empire. Uh, from what I remember, one of the one of the battles that that was uh, that was basically the linchpin or the not the linchpin, but the the final nail in the coffin for them in Vietnam was this one battle called Dien Bien Phu. And what it was was, how do I put it? What, what the French did was that they were so confident in their style of waging war that, you know, they had been dealing with I, I don't know if they were called the Viet Cong at this point, but you know they they were dealing with these insurgents out in Vietnam, and what they had told themselves was, or what they were telling the world was, you know what, if you put us in a situation where we are going to face them in a more traditional military militaristic scenario, we we would whoop them, you know, a hundred times out of a hundred times. It, it was that sort of a situation. So what they did was, we're going to build this fort out in the middle of nowhere and just invite them to come to us. 
and we'll we'll fight them all out fight it all out there you know just one final battle right there and it just ended up becoming a pretty massive military disaster uh for for the french and that was the backdrop of what was going on that they were using the backdrop that they were using for this first section was um the americans were called in to to help the french uh you know bolster their forces and help them maintain their 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 you know the last fledging bits of their empire mm-hmm. and and that's what you know that's the backdrop of this first story yeah yeah thanks for the history lesson it's 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 interesting stuff you know i uh yeah, but seeing it all play out and just seeing uh, seeing them lose that entire situation, um, it's it's pretty disheartening because by the end of it, they overthrow the fort and Nick Fury is like literally the last dude alive in that in that scenario. Yeah, all of the other soldiers were beheaded and their heads put on spikes. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty uh, gruesome. And we also find out that it wasn't even entirely an outside job either. It wasn't a situation where the opposing army was just coming from the outside and just overtook them. Um, a big part of the issue was that they were getting these supply drops from the, you know, from from their allies, but it almost the second that they landed, these su- supply drops were just attacked and wiped out, meaning that somebody was giving the the Vietnamese uh, intel on where these supply drops were coming from, and additionally, at one point, one of the one of the North Vietnamese, uh, or I don't even, again, I don't even know if they're considered North Vietnamese at this point, but one I of think the, they are because because uh, okay. it was after after the conflict when the the land was divided into uh, North and South. Okay, so you know they they have their own Vietnamese allies that are you know supposedly helping them in this situation and at one point one of them goes to like their headquarters or you know wherever their leaders are posted and blows himself up and and it's just this reminder that they are just so in over their heads that there really isn't anyone that they can trust because even the people that they're supposedly fighting for the the enemies are ingrained amongst them and plotting against them. Yeah. 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 Basically, they were infiltrated. Yeah. It's it's a really rough first story, and when you see that last page of just Nick Fury doing that walk of shame, where it's just rows and rows of heads on pikes. It's uh, yeah. It's moments like that where it's like, 
I can't help but look at Nick Fury as, you know, they've built him up. And if, if, if I was associated with a defeat on that scale, it, it, it'd be hard not to look at that and be like, that's a pretty bad blemish. But then again, he wasn't actually supposed to be there. So I guess there's that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But in his heart, he knows that he lost. Yeah, yeah. They also introduced uh, a villain, or not villain, but uh, an opponent by the name of Gap. Uh, Yeah. And he's someone that shows, that's going to show up a few more times over the course of the story. He... I don't know. Would you say he's like a foil to Fury in some way? I think so. I think certainly by the end of the series, I think that comes to fruition. And it, it I feel like that's what makes it obvious that they're foils. But maybe in a way, it, it would be more accurate to say that they're not foiled in the sense that they contradict each other in terms of their personalities or qualities in a lot of ways they're probably actually really similar they just yeah yeah they just work on opposing sides yeah but they both name was latron gap yeah 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 and i think by the time we get to the end of the story when they finally meet uh face to face at the vietnam memorial they just get the sense that he's also been through you know the similar kinds of experiences as fury and uh in a way probably just as addicted to fighting as fury was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At, or at the very least if he wasn't addicted he, at the very least he couldn't stop either and you know they both made heavy choices and stuff um for their own convictions but at the end of their conversation uh, he offers his hand and yeah. he says, we're both bound for hell. Yeah. And Fury's just shocked. Cause but he still shakes his hand. Yeah. Because I, I, I get that. I mean, this is a guy that he's tried to kill on multiple occasions. And not only that, on those occasions, he ended up being tortured by this dude or captured and yeah. humiliated in this way. And to finally meet now, all these years later, at at this at this memorial at this place of peace he's kind of bewildered by these conflicting feelings of i don't know if i actually should hate you or if i've just kind of been going on autopilot and just trying to kill you just because this whole time well i guess they should he his his, his feelings should be of hate towards this guy because this guy did mess him up pretty badly on multiple occasions. Yeah. But to see him now at the end of it all and to have this dude offer him a handshake, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like my first instinct would be to choke the life out of this guy right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like if I was, if I had had the life that, he had lived up to that point and I saw this dude right here. It almost doesn't matter that we're not in war times anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> like 
the, yeah. the impulse would be too strong, but but that's kind of the funny thing about war. It, it reminds me of um, a few years back. Uh, they did this. I was watching some news piece where uh, I think like Americans went back to Vietnam, and mm. uh, these were Vietnam vets, right? They had gone back to Vietnam, and they. They met like Vietnam veterans from their end of it, and they were just, I guess, commiserating, you know, just talking to each other. It, it feels weird to say that they were like friendly with each other, but that's kind of what it was. Yeah. And it's such a, it's such a crazy thought to think that, you know, only a few decades earlier these people were in a no holds bar life and death conflict with one another for all we know like any one of them could have been taking shots at somebody else there uh in, in that yeah room. and now here they are you know telling old stories and having a drink with each other it's, yeah it's the baffling it's baffling to think of how weird human nature can be. Yeah. Meanwhile, I still hold a grudge against the bullies uh, that bullied me back when I was in kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait till you uh, meet one of them in your old age. And I just watch as you choke the life out of one of those guys. <laughs> I've heard similar stories too uh, with World War II combat veterans. Yeah. Like, uh, American soldiers who were actually uh, prisoners of war in Japan, and after the war, they went back and even met their captors and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty heavy stuff, man. Like, I, if I had been a prisoner, I don't really know if I would want to go back and... And treat it like a joke, or like a... Not, not, not a joke, like a joke but... but I, I don't you know if I could still be civil, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, there's this one line here uh, that kind of alludes to what you were saying earlier when you were mentioning how they both had very similar lives and they just both followed the same course where they kind of... They couldn't help themselves except but to live in a way that they were constantly involved in some sort of conflict to the point where even when it was all over, it was a matter, it was a question of what was this all for? But yeah, it's a scene where uh gap and fury are walking together uh, by the, by the, the Vietnam war Memorial and gaps just talking. And he says, I believe that heaven is just, that is why we were triumphant. But heaven never stops watching. Our communist utopia was never realized because we bought the same cruelty and tyranny with which we fought the war to peacetime. I saw my comrades grow corrupt, rule our people with oppression, fear, and violence. I had degraded and dehumanized myself, sacrificed the lives of thousands for what? Perhaps that is why the likes of you and I are spared, so we might witness the full extent of our follies. Yeah, that's some good writing by Garth Ennis. Yeah, 
And, you know, um, I don't really know much about the period after uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, I, I know like bits and pieces of things, but again, based on what I do know, uh, like what he's saying here isn't, it's not, it's not a, a, a fiction. Like uh, once the communists took over the entirety of Vietnam, um, there was a lot of people suffered, man. Yeah, a lot of people suffered. There was purging. Like that that period of time is kind of lost to a lot of Americans because, you know, as far as a lot of Americans' concern of history goes, once we got out of Vietnam, that was the end of it for us. You know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. we don't really learn about that much of it after, in history books about what happened over in that region of the world after after the American exit. Yeah. But yeah, like it wasn't like they took over the government and it was it was peace throughout the land now because we got rid of the Americans. So <laughs> you know, now it's all good. Like, yeah, there there's uh definitely a period of conflict and turmoil for years, if not decades after that. And, you know, it's not till more, well, uh, relatively recently, I guess, that we, we begin to see, uh, you know, the modern Vietnam for what it is. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point that he makes there that, you know, he told himself that they were over here trying to expunge the enemy. And in the end, they were just as cruel to their own people as you know, the fictional boogeyman that they'd been fighting all these years. And yeah, that might be, you know, the most terrible kind of poetic justice to, to, to live through. Yeah. 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 Did you have any thoughts about the other conflicts covered in my war gone by? Yeah, the following uh, Vietnam, uh, there's a scene where, or the, the second story takes place in Cuba, and it's about them, uh, Fury and Hatherley, and, uh, you know, basically the American government training the, the Cubans to rise up and uh, for the Bay of Pigs invasion. And this is something that we have been kind of taught about in history and mm -hmm. we do know that it was just a massive debacle debacle and and i the book is consistent with that like there are things that happened like we do know that the cia and uh you know the kennedy administration did try to create this rebellion um I don't know the the exact details behind why it failed. Uh, the book uh, Fury My War Gone By does go into it a little bit where the short answer is that the politicians in Washington, D.C. were never fully committed to it. Uh, they were it was either it was some combination of hubris or lack of commitment that ultimately led to the, its failure. Mm -hmm. it was the hubris that 
whatever limited support and forces were available would be sufficient to overthrow Castro. It was the hubris to think that uh, it was the the belief in the uh, what I forget what the term is, but the people that were ousted from power in in Cuba. It was their belief in the those uh, ousted leaders who were telling them that if we come back into Cuba, like there are a whole bunch of people that would. You know that would welcome us with open arms. There, are, there are people waiting for us that will rise up with us if they just see us take the lead. Yeah. You know, and they even mentioned it at one point where I forget who was talking, but they were saying that how we're taking it. These were the people that were just last year ousted from their own government, and we're taking their word for it that if we come back and we reinstall them in power. They will be welcomed in with open arms. Like, there is something about that. There's a (laughs) level of disassociation there that's pretty bizarre to think. But at the same time, like, it wouldn't surprise me if this was a real thought process that the people in in power, uh, the people in the Kennedy administration were, you know, really... uh, had really considered if they really believed these people enough that it's like the more distant the leaders are from the situation the more out of touch with reality they are exactly exactly and it's it's them just being told what they want to hear and the the wholehearted belief that it's all going to work out and it really didn't um but I do think it's important to mention one of the one of the main recurring characters uh, in this story, a pug McCluskey. 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 I think it's Maybe. just McCluskey. McCluskey. Okay. No, no I don't think there's an L. Okay. So this this guy is someone who shows up pretty regularly throughout the book. He he's the one. He's the congressman who becomes a senator who ends up marrying shirley which is uh you know nick fury's i don't want to say love interest because i don't think there was any real love (laughs) 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 the object of his lust (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but here's this guy who who's who's pretty much your stereotypical sleazy politician and and his career path is just as the fingerprints of his career path are just as visible throughout these four regions as furies are is because he's constantly in the background just making promises trying to make deals and again it's a thing where he wants to commit as little as possible while getting as much as possible. And yeah. It, it, and something like the Bay of Pigs is a, a perfect example because the story starts, or it doesn't start, but a lot of it revolves around the fact that he has made these uh, uh, allies of these ousted uh, former leaders of Cuba 
and because of his connections, he's able to set the groundwork for the invasion of the Bay of Pigs. And this guy is just so sleazy that the very second that things start to go south and, you know, when things go go wrong, they go massively wrong. So, you know, the people don't rise up. Uh, the air support that they were promised never show up. Uh, and the the army that does rise up in in the Bay of Pigs, they they end up just getting butchered because yeah, mm-hmm. support doesn't come. Uh, there was supposed to be a a feint that was supposed to happen, uh, uh, another attack that was supposed to draw uh, the Cuban army away from their location so that they could, you know, secure the beachhead and uh, gather their forces and link up with the the rebel guerrillas in the region but yeah the attack didn't happen the support didn't come and you know the thousands of men that they had trained to to rise up against castro um they just got wiped out and at one point mccuskey is just like he has three of these guys in his house and they're just listening as all this goes wrong and and you know the the three uh, uh, former um, Cuban uh, dissidents or whatever they're understandably upset when uh, they send Sh- when Shirley goes to look for McCuskey. That guy totally just ditched her. Yeah, yeah. He was like, I thought you would just be a secretary and you know tell them that I was somewhere else and they wouldn't they would yeah. just leave you alone. That's pretty naive or. Yeah, you know, I, I don't really believe that. He yeah, thinks at, that at this was point, the case. she's not even his secretary. At this point, she's his wife. Yeah. So he knows that even if he doesn't know the extent to which these guys are killers or whatever, he knows that there, common sense has to dictate that he knows that if these guys aren't happy with the news that these things are going as badly as they are, there's a chance they're going to hurt someone. And instead of, you know, thinking of his wife or whatever, he, he totally just hightails it out of there just to save himself. Yeah. Coward. Yeah. And you might even say he could have knowingly left her there. Knowing that, she might buy him time or, you know, allow them to satisfy whatever their bloodlust is just to get them off his ass. Yeah. It's pretty messed up. It's messed up. It's disgusting. It, it, but it just shows you the kind of character McCuskey is. And he's, he's a guy who's constantly his, his entire story is intertwined with Fury because Fury being the good soldier, Fury being the guy who gets things done, McCuskey sees that in him. He sees that addiction in him very early and takes advantage of it. Takes advantage of it, exactly. He uses it to send him again and again into these situations where this guy's going to more. This guy has a very high likelihood of a chance that he's going to get himself killed. And, you know, if he does, 
if he succeeds, great. I my star rises. If he fails, then it's just another guy that dies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. He's he's a pretty disgusting character. Yeah. Like a pig. <laughs> and his nickname is Pug. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, th- I guess that kind of works because he functions as the stand-in for the government american government as a whole yeah it's yeah i guess in a way it's it's like um i don't know synecdoche or something but it's it's like one one individual represents the american political machine during the cold war and that character represents all of that you know it's just yeah. him as a lone individual in the story because uh, you don't really see too many other American politicians for the most part. There are, there are mentions of other figures, but he's really the only one who gets any kind of screen time. Yeah. He's the one who gets involved with these under-the-table deals and you know, he maintains this sort of plausible deniability while Fury goes out there to kind of do his bidding or his dirty work on his behalf or on behalf of the government. But it, yeah, it's pretty much all for naught um, in terms of what Fury gets out of it. And for McCuskey, like you said, if Fury dies, he dies. But if he actually succeeds in his mission, then that's more political points for McCuskey. Yeah. Yeah. There was one event that I wanted to mention uh, in, in this story arc where what ends up happening is uh, after everything goes wrong, Fury, Hatherly, and a third character by the name of uh, Elgin. I think it's Elgin, right? Uh, I think so. That sounds right. I I don't remember off the top of my head. I got to flip around. See yeah. If... So what ends up happening is they they see how badly things are. Oh yeah. By the way, the other thing that they tell themselves prior to the invasion is Castro's a coward. There's no way he's once we invade the entire army will 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 fold because <laughs> Castro's just gonna like run into the jungle and hide out until you know all is clear. Like there's no way he leads the fight to rise up against the the you know our forces and that totally doesn't happen castro ends up leading the forces you know mm-hmm. head and meeting them head on so like i said everything that could have gone wrong totally goes wrong and at at that point uh fury hatherly and elgin you know they're just good soldiers and even though everything else has failed, they know what their objective is, which is they're on this island to assassinate Castro. And the, uh, Fury even tells himself, like, even even if everything's wrong, if we assassinate Castro, that might sow enough chaos where it'll make the difference. I don't know how true that is, but it would be... Pretty much wishful thinking. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it would it would do some harm. I don't think it would do the 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 level of harm or damage 
it, it it might be akin to getting one good sucker punch in on your way out the door. You know? Yeah. Just so you can tell yourself, you know, we might have lost, but at least we killed Castro. Um, but yeah, they go out there to assassinate Castro, and yeah, things go wrong because why not? <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. as they're lining up the shot and to take the shot, uh, someone walks out onto the roof and draws attention to them. And as a result, they end up captured and being tortured by uh, Castro and uh, the his, the Cubans. Um, but what they want is they want to force an admission out of them so that they can use them for propaganda. And it just ends up being this thing where, you know, they're beaten mercilessly and viciously. And then at the end, they are taken onto a pier where there are, I think they were either man-eating sharks or crocodiles. I think they're sharks. Yeah, they're sharks. So they take them onto this pier and they take Elgin and, well, they castrate him. And throw him into the water. I think that was a, a proper reading of it, right? Yeah, they castrate him. And at that moment, Fury and Hatherly, you know, they spring into action. They are able to kill all of the other Cubans that are holding them uh, prisoner. And they even save Elgin. They find a little dinghy and they, they head back to the mainland. But it's it's a pretty messed up close to the story because yeah at that point elgin's elgin doesn't even have any arms and legs and again he you know his 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 man parts have have been removed and it's it's a hard scene to read because hatherley's over here telling him it's all right. We saved you. We we put a tourniquet on. We can get you back to your wife. You know, you she'll you know you'll you'll be with the people that loves you. And the thing about Elgin is he comes from a family of soldiers, and they all kind of know what the score is. And and what he says is he looks at Hatherly and he goes, you know, I want to. Uh, what does he say? Thank you, sir. I appreciate everything you've done for me. And then he just looks at. Fury and he goes, Colonel Fury, and Fury just goes, yeah, like you know, like there's there's this mutual understanding, and he just walks up and he just pops him in the head because I think the implication being that these two men are alike in that they're soldiers, they're bred and made to fight, and if he can't do any of these things, if this guy has no use, then he's almost better off dead. Yeah. Fury's eyes. So Fury just caps him right there. Yeah. Hatherly's just distraught about it. He's just like, why? Why'd you do that? Yeah, it's it's a pretty heavy ending to the to that particular story. Yeah. Like a really it's a really powerful one that just kinda forces you to i guess put down the book and just think about what you've read yeah like it, it yeah it's heavy man it really does feel like 
if the picture of Fury that they're trying to paint is that he's a man who is so addicted to war to the point where even when he does, even when the government asks him to do things that are obviously bad or wrong, he's willing to do them because it means that he can prolong the war so that he can continue to fight it. Yeah. And it it feels like if that's the way that he looks at the world, then the way that he treats Elgin in that moment, maybe he can tell himself... Yeah, maybe he can tell himself it's a mercy, but there's also that extra element of he this guy will not be able to do what he was meant to do like yeah there it, he he almost has no value beyond that yeah it's like if you're alive but you can't fight a war what's the point of living yeah yeah that's right? kind of fury's attitude because yeah you know, very early on in the book, when during the framing story, when he's an old man kind of recording all of the experiences, one of the things he says is, I lick up war like it was sugar. Yeah, yeah. Should we jump to the next uh, scene or the next region, which is Vietnam? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we go back to Vietnam, and this time the French are no longer there, and we see very early on that Hatherly, all this stuff has taken a toll on Hatherly. At this point, he's established himself as no longer wanting to go on these missions. He's willing to help Fury out, but his capacity is going to be changed. He wants to It feels like it's an innocent thing because, you know, he has a family now, which I'm sure does play a big part of it. But there is, you know, after everything that we just saw in the last chapter with what Fury did to Elgin, it it really does feel like he's seen enough of it where... Yeah, he's not on the same level as Fury in that regard. Exactly. You can't... He can't keep up with that, and he's not willing to. He ain't a killer like that, you know. He'll, yeah. He's a soldier. He he he'll do what he has to because he believes it. But to some degree, he's seen too much of it. And yeah, he I mean, just to quote what he says to Fury when Fury's about to, you know, invite him on this mission. Hatherly says, "I'm out of shape, I know, but it's more than that. Ever since Cuba, and some of the things since." I don't know. I just don't think I could pull the trigger when the moment came. I haven't got that kind of courage anymore, Nick. If I go with you, I'll be more of a hindrance than a help. My mind's not in the right place. I haven't told you this again, but Ava's pregnant. Or I haven't told you this, but Ava's pregnant again. And then, you know, he gets cut off and Fury says some his thing. But, you know, it, it goes back to that line where he says, I haven't got that kind of courage anymore. Because later on... uh in the next story, Fury quotes that line back to him, essentially recognizing that Hatherly, he's he's changed, you know? Like, maybe in the first two stories, when he was in his uh, younger years, he, he could have been like a, 
maybe like a sidekick sort of character for Fury. He could have at least tagged along and, you know, helped him out and stuff. But yeah, now he's he's yeah. not really he can't do it, man. It's yeah, it's, it's not a life for everyone. He 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 served his time and uh you know he, now he's serving in a different capacity but he's he's not like that frontline uh operative yeah. anymore yeah yeah he um and just to be clear Heatherly at this point or up to this point i think he's i mean he he clearly does a bunch of stuff with fury and for fury but he's kind of Fury's go-to sniper at this point. Mm-hmm. And you know, once once he claims that he once he draws that line in the sand and says, "Okay, I can't really do this for you anymore." They go out and he finds someone else and the guy that they find is Frank Castle himself. Yeah. The Punisher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, of course Dave Johnson's cover for issue 7 has uh, a silhouette of the Punisher where you can see the the skull on his chest. I mean, of course, that doesn't appear in the actual comic, but yeah, the cover kind of tells you all you need to know. Yeah, yeah. It it reminds me of something that you showed me earlier today, which is it's kind of disheartening, but uh, you showed me the sales numbers for the books and how despite the fact that the quality of the content of the book is clearly something different from your standard superhero comic, uh, it makes me wonder whether as they were coming out, they, they were telling themselves, well, we should try to put stuff in there to like, you know, let people, obviously you want people to pick up the cover to pick up the comic based on what you see on the cover right it's it's, yeah it's one of the first things they see but i have to wonder it they someone had to have said well we should try to tease that the punisher is in it so that you know people come to it knowing or thinking that oh we're gonna see the punisher (laughs) i mean which technically you do you see frank castle yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't, but, I don't know if that was their mindset. I, I, I feel like, Ennis is probably gonna do the story regardless. And, that's true. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I have a feeling that Dave Johnson did that cover not necessarily because he thought putting the skull on the cover would boost sales, but yeah. just because it was an image that. It it the iconography of it does make sense. Yeah. In the context of the comic, just because seeing that skull tells you all you really need to know. Yeah. Now, if they had put Deadpool in it, <laughs> that would have been pretty commercial. <laughs> that would have been that would have been pandering for sure. <laughs> Imagine if there's a cover, if there's a universe out there where instead of the skull on the silhouette. We see the Deadpool face mask uh, on the yeah. silhouette instead. <laughs> a Deadpool variant cover or something. Yeah. Man, <laughs> that would be harsh. <laughs> That's yeah. Not... I mean, it's kind of funny that 
you brought up the sales of the series because earlier at the beginning of the recording we were talking about black adam and how the uh how that sold a, a bunch of tickets and it didn't impress us and clearly this comic did not sell a lot of comics but it does impress us yeah and this this comic is only a tiny fraction of what the black adam movie is but this is so much better yeah yeah like i think that says everything it needs to say about us though personally we're we're committed to good taste more than any flash or spectacle yeah the the downside of the low sales for this book though is that i don't think it's necessarily easy to find because uh, i'm looking at wikipedia right now and i'm looking at the sales for the trade paperbacks and the first trade sold about 2800 the second trade sold 1800 and the hardcover sold 1300 <laughs> yeah yeah which is pretty minuscule number and from what i know those trades and the hardcover are long out of print yeah so the easiest way to find these is just to get them digitally or you know try to hunt down the back issues I did get lucky. I did find a copy of the deluxe hardcover at one of the conventions. And uh, it was one of those sales where it was like three hardcovers for $20. Mm-hmm. And I forget what else I got with it. But, you know, at that price, it didn't ended up being eight bucks for me. Yeah, that's really good. I actually yeah. looked in my history of my orders and I found that I had ordered the hardcover and I paid uh, about 20 bucks for it off from uh, in-stock trades when it first came out back in 2014. So, yeah, I've had this for a while now. Yeah, I remember you got it, like, almost when it first came out. Yeah, you pretty much the week it came it. out. Yeah. Yeah, you were pretty high on it, which at the time, all I knew was that Garth Ennis wrote it. So... That was kind of enough for me. And I, I I I read it much later than you did, but I do remember thinking that this was something different, you know, um, mm-hmm. after having read it. Just it felt more substantive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so back to what ends up happening in this chapter uh so what ends up happening is the americans are now involved in the escalating situation in vietnam and nick fury is informed by higher ups uh that latrong gap is is now um managing the logistics for the uh, North Vietnamese army, and as a result, they they say that he's increased efficiency by quote unquote thirty percent. And uh, yeah, I think they said something along the along the lines of there was a thirty eight percent increase in efficiency or something. And so they get news that Latrong Gap is going to appear in this one area and because this guy is super elusive 
Nick Fury is uh, being one of the few people who's ever met this guy or seen this guy uh, and who can identify him, they want to send him out and eliminate him, eliminate Latron Gap, because the thinking is, again, back to that whole Castro thing, uh, if we kill this one guy, that'll, you know, that'll, it'll reflect a 30% decrease in their efficiency in the battle. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. that's how that works. <laughs> yeah. That's math. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, Fury ends up getting uh, a replacement for Hatherly, and that ha replacement is Frank, no other than Frank Castle himself, the Punisher. And they go out and they go out into the wilderness to set up and try to ambush gap but what, yeah. happens, what ends up happening is they stumble across a laotian child and they don't really know what to do neither of them really has it in them to kill this kid so they just send the kid on their way and they decide they're they're just going to take their chances and commit to the mission and as a result of that um you know, the thing that ends up happening obviously ends up happening, which is the kid goes back to his parents and alerts. Pretty much warns everybody. Yeah, to these two Americans that are out here doing something. He might not know what, but they know he's out, that they're out here now. And as a result, Gap is more than ready for them. They, you know, the, the two guys put up a fight. Castle and Fury put up a fight, but what ends up happening is they end up just being overwhelmed and captured. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting discussion that they have when they're imprisoned. You know, they're talking and yeah, you know, Fury and Punisher, I'm looking at that scene right now. Yeah, they're making it sound like we we didn't, you know. They made it sound like they were. It was like this real noble thing. It's like we didn't kill a kid. That's what. That's why you got you got lucky is because we weren't willing to kill a kid. And Gap just kind of throws it back in their face by saying, "You guys, the American government drops like bombs and chemicals from the sky, yeah. out entire families. You think you're like special because you didn't kill one kid? Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's." Yeah, it, it's it's kind of it, it really does make you think about how warped warfare makes everything. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm uh, it's uh it's almost the equivalent of going out there and saying like I woke up today and I didn't murder a family. So that means I'm great. I'm a hero. I'm a good exactly. person. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But what ends up happening is, you know, Fury, uh, while he's under arrest, I, th I think he begins to realize that this whole thing has been just a half-assed setup by, you know, his people and the government just to send him out there. You know, again, with that logic that, oh, 30% uh, 
you know, there's this 30% increase in their, if like, you know, efficiency. And Fury's just like, how do they even measure that? I should have known that that yeah. was like bullcrap. And, but it's, it's a moment like that that makes me wonder whether it even mattered to Fury. Because if you stop and think about it, if Fury's the guy that they paint him to be in this story, like, it almost doesn't matter whether those numbers made sense or not because at the end of the day him getting to go out there he just wanted to fight yeah exactly that's all that really mattered to him yeah and then that the end of that scene that you just uh referenced when fury and frank are sitting in that uh cell they're talking and uh you know they basically have this conversation where they come to agree that they better not take the chance of making, sh- uh, they better not take the chance of shortening the war. <laughs> yeah. And it just shows you how addicted both of them are to fighting. Yeah. 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 The, the drawing there, the last panel of issue eight, that's a pretty magnificent, frank castle drawing like just like all of the it just says everything about his personality man it just captures his character yeah just the grim determination it's almost like there's no warmth or humanity in it that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty scary face man yeah i was gonna ask you so we see Frank Castle and we see Nick Fury here in this situation. They're they're sharing this story together. And, you know, I kind of mentioned what my thoughts on what the difference between Fury and uh, the Punisher are as, as Garth Ennis presents them uh, in his story. But I'm kind of wondering if you had any thoughts on that or if this story this particular segment of the story uh, tells you anything about how these two characters are are the same or different um, when it comes to the idea of just what warfare can do to people. I feel like I do have thoughts on how to compare and contrast them based on what Ennis has written in all of his Marvel comics. But if I'm just strictly looking at this comic, I'm not sure that they're that different the way that they're presented in these issues, except maybe uh, Fury has a little bit of a broader understanding of the wider situation, or at least maybe he's uh, more directly exposed to it because of his higher rank. But at the end of the day, they're both, uh, you know, just really, really good soldiers who are willing to do whatever it takes to kill the enemy. And they're not they're not afraid to die either. You know, like the job, the job. And that's what Frank Castle tells them at the end of it. You know, when they both they both could have died uh, from friendly fire when the American forces were carpet bombing that area, 
Mm-hmm. But it, it wasn't like Frank Castle was mad about it. He was like, no, that's smart. Don't have a problem with that. Yeah, like, yeah. I guess in a way, maybe it, it feels like because Frank Castle in this story, and really in most of Venice's stories, he's always presented as this stoic figure who who doesn't he he talks but he doesn't like overly talk and yeah i think because of that um there's a certain tone for the character that is maintained where he feels compared to fury in this comic he definitely feels like he's on a path to become an even more extreme nick fury mm. Mm. like i could read this and tell myself oh yeah i could see why frank castle becomes somebody like the punisher yeah like he probably wouldn't end up like fury still getting involved in politics and the chain of command but if you just left him alone and told him hey go kill those mobsters or those people need to die. Yeah. He's going to be pretty effective at that. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. looking at how Ennis writes the Punisher in the Punisher series, I think it it's a characterization that is consistent. And we do, even in the Punisher series, there's a version of Nick Fury that shows up in there. Um, I, I hesitate to say that there's an Ennis verse where all of his Max comics take place in the same shared universe or continuity. Uh, maybe some people look at it that way. I don't think I necessarily look at it that way. But one thing I can say is that Ennis is consistent in his characterization. And the characters do feel like the same fundamental people across his different works, even if the continuity or the setting or the tone of the series, whether it's an adult book or a Marvel Knights book, uh, Mm. you know, the characters are still fundamentally the same. And he has, Ennis has a strong understanding of how he wants to write them and present them. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that's true. Uh, This, this version of the Punisher might not be the full-on sociopath that we see later, but there are flashes of it apparent. He mm-hmm. he definitely has the skill for it, and there's also that yeah that stoicism that you mentioned. I also wanted to mention this one scene. Um, you know, just another example of how Pug McCuskey is just. A sack of crap <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> he he's just a person that i love to hate in this book <laughs> but he has a very punchable face he does he does um so you know they reveal that there's this backup contingency plan to kill gap which is if these if, if fury and castle don't make it if they're not able to wipe this guy out then the backup plan is that the American government's just going to send a strike in to to blow everything up, and mm-hmm. there's a off chance that they'll get Gap, 
but additionally, there's an off chance that they'll wipe out any remains that uh, the Americans were there. So, you know, it's it's a it's it's a final hail mary in case any everything goes wrong. Yeah. And what ends up happening is Shirley goes and she appeals to McCuskey. You know, at this point, she still feels like she has this idealized version of Fury in her mind. And she's very much enamored with that idea of him mm-hmm. to the point where she goes out of her way to try to save him. And she's telling, and even though she's married to McCuskey, she's calling him and freaking out at the fact that this miss, these missiles are going to come and, you know, that they're going to abandon Fury and Castle out there. Maybe yeah. Castle. I don't know if she even knows who Castle is, but, <laughs> but so she's trying, she's appealing to him to see if he can get Washington to, you know, stop the missiles from flying. And he has this conversation with her and he appeases her and he says, I'm going to go, I'll do what I can. I'll go out of my way. And at the end of that entire long conversation, he just puts on the phone and he just sits there whistling to himself while he's reading the paper. (laughs) What a liar. Yeah. Right. What a gross piece of crap. (laughs) And then at the end of it all, Fury and uh, Castle, they they escape on their own and uh, you know proceed to just cause a bunch of mayhem, wipe out a bunch of people, and they're even able to get Gap. They think that they've they've gotten him. They uh, he gets shot through the neck and uh, he he passes out on the ground. And then the missiles come and it just blows up that entire area uh, of the training camp that Gap and these northern Vietnamese soldiers are at. And yeah, it feels like they they came and they did what they needed to do. And that's kind of the end of that. Uh, and it just ends with this really, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but it it ends with this really gross conversation with uh, Nick and McCuskey. Again, McCuskey just proving that he's a guy who's completely out for himself. And he's trying to paint this image of himself as, oh, I did the best that I could to save you, but you know me. I'm not as high up on the totem pole as you think I am. And just all this garbage about... You know, a uh, chain of command. It's not even my area to come in and uh, make any requests or de- demands about. I don't have that kind of power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's the note that uh, Vietnam ends on. But, There's something interesting in the art in that scene too. Uh, the last two pages of issue nine. Yeah. But when they're standing outside of the plane. And they're talking, and Fury is smoking that cigar. Look at the way he draws the cigar smoke on the like on the top panel of page of the second to last page, and just those last two pages in general. It just pretty kind of draws these geometric shapes. <laughs> it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I remember seeing that a couple of times um, 
at the back of the book too, um, they were talking about how they had to redraw some pages because they drew the wrong planes. I thought that was an interesting little tidbit, actually. Uh, I think you have the same deluxe hardcover, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was in uh, issue four. Yeah, but uh, there's a it just panel. shows the uh, attention to detail. Yeah, exactly. They really, they really cared about something that the average person like us we wouldn't realize that those aircraft uh, were incorrect. Or the wrong planes. Yeah. yeah, I don't know enough about planes to be able to exactly. identify that. But I did read the part at the top where it goes, the whole team when Fury shares a love of history and a perfectionist streak. So when Garth noticed that Goran accidentally drew the wrong kind of aircraft, Goran practically redrew the pages altogether. Check out the two versions and compare. Mm -hmm. Like that that is a little bit of insight to just how much like how much thought they put into the book uh and how much their basis of knowledge is it yeah it reminds me of one of the one star reviews that you sent me where somebody was complaining about Garth Ennis's perspective on on these theaters of war and saying that well you know with as someone from with a strictly western perspective on uh on war and history uh you know he was basically calling their their perception of of these historical uh moments in question just because you know they they come from a particularly western worldview or whatever but i think that just that quote just goes to show that these weren't just you know uh uh what's it called these guys weren't just pulling it out of their butts or anything they they're people who uh ennis and uh parlov are are two guys that care about history and they've done uh enough research and they have some knowledge of the subject so it's not like it's completely out of the blue yeah yeah Yeah. and from what i remember in reading ennis's other war comics uh he usually if he gets the opportunity in the collected edition he usually does share uh the different sources that he used as research. Yeah. And I'd even say that, you know, just in response to this one guy who, you know, was pretty full of himself, uh, you know, criticizing their, their take on this story. Like it kind of doesn't even matter like whether the details are all that accurate because the point of the story is about war and the toll that it takes on on people so i don't even necessarily think that the idealism uh behind the motivations of these wars is necessarily something that has to be a hundred percent accurate because at the end of the day there's all sorts of motivations uh that are being incorporated here and Mm -hmm. Uh, it's really more about the idea of just what being addicted to war does to you more than it is about 
you know, the Iron Curtain or whatever. Yeah, maybe in a way, Fury himself functions as a metaphor for America being addicted to war. You said something similar to that earlier, and I hadn't thought about it, but when you mentioned it, it's it's a pretty interesting notion to consider. Um, I think a lot of people would take... Well, no, let me rephrase it. I think if that is true, then someone like Hatherly might represent your average American in that, again, there's this sense and belief that what you're doing is being done for a good cause and a good reason. Yeah, there's some idealism. Yeah, whereas Fury might be more the cold practical reality behind that thought process Mm -hmm. you know so Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting it's again it's another interesting juxtaposition between these two characters having them coexist and work together on these various operations and just seeing the different paths that their respective lives took yeah yeah uh in the following story we end up with Nicaragua uh admittedly this is the part of history that I'm probably least versed about uh I I I have some very like peripheral knowledge of the subject um but but the story the story that takes place uh is about how the again the the idea being that there are quote unquote communists in Nicaragua that could potentially be a threat to the United States. So you know the Americans are injecting resources into this conflict in the hopes of stopping or yeah in the hopes of stopping uh the threat of communism Mm -hmm. but uh in the years that followed uh elements of the drug war end up incorporating itself into the conflict as drugs become a major source of wealth in that country um so they end up backing these Sandinistas who, uh, so in the story, what ends up happening is the government has lost its taste for war and isn't willing to fund it. And there's, there are certain elements within the American government who still want to be able to keep the war going uh, as that theme that we've seen over and over again. And the question of how do we fund this war if the American government itself won't fund it? And there's... But you you meant to say that uh, we funded the Contras, right? Oh, Contras. Sorry, what did I? Yeah. Oh, I don't. Yeah, I don't even know what the difference between the Contra and the Sandinistas. But yeah, the Contra. the Sandinistas were the, I think they were the commies. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah they were the ones. The Contras were the ones I think that the U.S. Uh, backed 
because they were okay. like the rebel group. Okay. But, okay. Yeah, this just goes to show like how confusing it is for. Yeah. For exactly. Us. <laughs> exactly. So what ends up happening is, um, in order to the the question of how does how do they fund the conflict or the war? Well, with all the drugs being moved in that area, um, you know, different sides are claiming that the other side is responsible for the drug trade, but what we are introduced to is another operative by the name of the Barracuda. And he's someone that we've seen in uh, the Punisher books. I I don't know what the reaction to him was when Ennis first created him, but it sounds like he was kind of their blow-up character. Was, was he popular? Uh, I don't really know because... The I don't even know how popular the series was by the time that Barracuda was introduced, but okay. at the very least, I would say Ennis had a personal affinity for him because that's one of the rare characters that shows up in multiple story arcs, and he even had his own miniseries. So yeah, yeah, I I kind of doubt that he moved the needle in terms of sales or anything, or that he was a fan favorite. I, I really think it was just that Ennis enjoyed an writing Ennis the favorite. character. Yeah. 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 It, it was weird to me too. Cause when I was reading the Punisher series, mm-hmm. I think it was one of the, I think it was like a cover blurb or something on the Barracuda miniseries where, and and this is probably just a marketing thing, but uh i think the blurb said something like yeah something like the blow-up character uh, <laughs> the brain you know the knockout character from the punisher max series barracuda gets his own mini series and even then i was i was it kind of had me crooking my neck uh thinking wait was he popular <laughs> yeah I, it really got me thinking i really wasn't sure i was like uh i'll take your word for it <laughs> yeah yeah I don't, I don't know man i mean i was reading the punisher series as it was coming out so uh i wasn't necessarily paying attention to the discourse at the time it was sort of this you know pre-twitter era but yeah. uh i don't remember people on forums hankering or clamoring for more barracuda stories or anything it was more just like huh that's a character <laughs> and he's a heck of a character the guy is the guy's a sadist <laughs> yeah yeah if, there's a scene in this in this comic in my war gone by when uh barracuda and his cronies basically go off to a village and slaughter the village and get all the drugs that they farmed uh, and Fury comes across it in the aftermath, uh, and he just sees like body parts strewn about. He sees piles of corpses uh, with the smoke kind of fading away, uh, piles of heads, uh, and then he comes across this body, this corpse of a woman whose uh, stomach was torn open and see her intestines and 
her guts strung out. And then uh, it's a pretty chilling scene because Fury's looking at this through his night vision goggles and he's looking at this woman with her stomach torn open. And then you follow one of the cords from her stomach and it's an umbilical cord connected to uh, the baby she was pregnant with. And then you see in the next panel, it's that baby, but it's just, there's a footprint yeah. in the baby. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's absolutely grotesque. Yeah. And super. Yeah. Up. I mean, it, it's just the scene where th that last page of issue 11 is there, there's nothing you can really say other than to look at it and just be like, dude, what did I just read? Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's moments like that where. It's like borderline it's, gratuitous, borderline shock value, but it's also, yeah. it, it's also just at that place where because of everything that we've read up to this point, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's just there for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like maybe the one moment in the entire series where, uh, we're just presented with something so shocking that we can't help but have a visceral reaction. You know, it's like, yeah, we've we've just had like 11 issues of a bunch of war and there's people dying and we had scenes where people's heads were put on spikes, uh, people getting blown up and shot up. Someone got eaten by sharks and or, you know, he had his he got castrated and then had his arms chewed off by sharks you know you're seeing all this kind of stuff and then and then you just see uh at the end of this issue a baby uh an unborn baby with a footprint crushing yeah. it that that's just like almost over the top you know like it's just so violent and and gross that you just got to read the next issue man it's, it's stunning like, it's yeah it's it's so stunning yeah and like I don't mean that in like a a marvelous way. It's like so shocking that yeah you yeah I, I can incapable. honestly say I've, I've never read any other comic book that had a picture of a like that yeah yeah and but that's not something I ever imagined before you know yeah but at the same time it's 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 a scary thought because it's not so far out of reality that. You know that I, I people doubt. do terrible things to each other exactly when left exactly. unchecked, and I I don't think that Annis's purpose was to glorify that type of violence. I I, I yeah, don't think I don't think so point. either. But again, it's it's something where the shock value is just so immense that it leaves you at a loss for words and it it does almost feel like it's gratuitous but because the message of the book itself is is about the raw uh just brutality of it all mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like he's committed to that to the point where he's willing to show you the vilest thing that he possibly can in order to commit to that 
logic and i don't know i i it's hard for me to say where like on some level i kind of commend that level of commitment but on another level it's like i don't know if it was really necessary to go and commit that hard to it is that one of those panels that made your stomach churn albert <laughs> i think it was i think the first time i read it it certainly wasn't it was a moment where I was almost fascinated by what I was looking at because it was like you turn the page and you see it and you're just so stunned by it that I really had to wonder if I was seeing what I thought I was seeing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I don't know. I feel like in any other book, they would have done something, they would have like left that to your imagination, right? Like you would have seen Nick Fury looking at the devastation and then you're just supposed to take a look at his facial expression and interpret, your your imagination mm -hmm. will interpret the rest for you. Mm -hmm. But, and most of the times, I, I think that's more than enough and that works, but this was clearly a choice on his part yeah he wanted yeah. you to see it and for some people that might be too much and too gross to the point where i could definitely imagine people just putting the book down and in disgust and just going i can't i just can't yeah that's true and and i don't know if i can necessarily blame them for that yeah yeah that's true too yeah you, you were telling me a story earlier that george clooney was in talks to play nick fury uh oh, yeah. in in a movie or something in the, um, in the early 2000s yeah and then uh there was in the early 2000s one of the first marvel max comics was a nick fury comic that was just called fury and it was also by Garth Ennis, and it had uh, art by Derek Robertson. And that one is a pretty different tone from this one, because that 2001 Fury comic was uh, like a really bleak, uber-violent comedy, mm. uh, black comedy, just super dark. And uh, even though the fundamental nature of Fury was still pretty similar, in that he was a character who was addicted to war and couldn't basically he basically couldn't adjust to living a normal life uh because that wasn't who he was it it needed he needed violence in order to function. feel alive or or function otherwise he was just pissed off all the time but if you read that book uh and it's also kind of hard to find now unfortunately but it's it's super violent it's it's got that kind of preacher style gross out gratuitous violence and uh yeah there's a story on uh, wikipedia for that 2001 fury comic where george clooney uh dropped out of talks to portray fury in an upcoming movie because of that comic because <laughs> he just found it so abhorrent yeah yeah <laughs> but i so, imagine i imagine if he had read if you read this one, he would have thrown up. Yeah. 
He would have just burned it at the stake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but what ends up happening in, in this story is that there's a secret plot where the uh, the Barracuda and his quote-unquote special ops team, what they're actually doing is stealing the drugs and reselling them and they get to skim off the top of that uh, off the top of those sales and the money from those drugs uh is also used to fund their operations um you know to 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 keep the war going so what ends up happening is um you know fury uh is understandably just disgusted by this entire situation. Yeah. Uh, but McCuskey, you know, he, at, at one point, he even confronts McCuskey about the whole thing where uh, McCuskey asks rhetorically, like, how am I supposed to fund a war if I can't even, uh, if, if the government won't fund it? And, and Fury basically, uh, accuses him and says you know well if people if certain people in the government are selling drugs you know poisoning our own streets with drugs um or are the streets of our allies with drugs and they're taking that money just to keep things going you know what would you have to gain you 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 gain jobs you gain uh you know uh leverage you gain uh influence like this just keeps going for you. And McCuskey uh, looks back at Fury and throws it back in his face. And he goes, well, what do you gain from this uh, experience? Like, mm -hmm. you're someone who wants to fight and prolong the war just so you have a war to keep fighting. And is it really any, that, any different from what I do uh, to keep it going so that I benefit from it? We're both benefiting from this at the end of the day, and it's it's a pretty messed up moment of McCuskey just having Fury, this tough guy, just by the balls. Um, earlier in the story, he's talking with Shirley, and it it's it's a moment where she's upset at him because. He's he's now bringing his his whores into into their home, into yeah. their home, and you know she's. It's not that she didn't know that he was cheating on her, but the indignity of it all of them living in the house, uh, you know. Of it's very disrespectful. It is. It is, and. You know, she makes this huge scene about it and, you know, she cusses him out and this and that. And he basically goes, I always knew you were disgusted by me, even that first time that we made love. And I knew, or not even made love, but, you know, had sex. And even then I knew that you were only with me because of what I could get you. And even then I knew that you were sleeping around on me with Nick Fury. So... If you want to leave, that's fine. But everything is in my name and, uh, you know, out on the world on your own. You have nothing for yourself. And and it's a moment where 
there'll be a callback later where he he talks about he alludes to an earlier scene where Shirley is talking about Nick Fury and she says that Fury is the kind of man that you can't control, you know, because he's you know, he's wild and he's a rogue and he's all this and that. He's noble, but at the end of it all, uh McCuskey, this slime ball, this sleazy dude, uh, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh he he's talking to Fury and he goes, She said that she reminded him of someone, uh, you know, making the allusion to the fact that Fury and Shirley are alike in some ways in that they both saw themselves as people that couldn't be tamed. And ultimately McCuskey was the one who, 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 who kind of mm -hmm. broke both of them. Mm -hmm. you know? He broke her because he forced her or he didn't force her, but he, he got her into this situation where she has to put up with the disrespect of this marriage. And likewise, Fury has to do what McCuskey says, if only to continually feed his thirst and lust for war. Yeah. So at the end of it all, they're both, they're both kind of pathetic in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty disheartening, uh, realization yeah uh, here it is i'm looking at the scene right now um so it's mccuskey talking to shirley and she this is after she found out that you know he's bringing uh these hookers or these whores into his into his home and just you know not even trying to hide it he's just sleeping with them uh out in the open um and he goes do you remember Saigon in 54? You said Fury couldn't be tamed, that he'd go his own way no matter what. And you knew someone just like him, someone you saw whenever you looked in the mirror. Well, he goes wherever I want and does whatever I tell him, essentially in exchange for being allowed to live his life in a combat zone. And you are you. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like, he he's got them both in checkmate at that point yeah it's just a stunning truth that there's just really no retort for yeah you're right about that it's one of those things where as a final word it's it's a pretty devastating blow absolutely absolutely Ugh. And the way that the story ends, too, um, so Fury comes in, and he investigates, and he finds he finds all the evidence he needs to prove that, hey, these uh, this special ops force is, they're nothing more but just another street gang. They're, they're finding ways to use their networks to sell these drugs to continue to fund the war. So I'm going to take this evidence, I'm going to take it back to the higher-ups in Washington, and we're going to do something about it. And what ends up happening is he brings it to him, and McCuskey says, well, there's nothing we can really do. Uh, and, you know, initially, uh, it's like, why, um, why can't we do anything about it? And his answer is just that, 
well, all of all of the people in the special ops force that uh, that you've implicated, well, they have their own networks and they've just disappeared back into. They've completely just disappeared. They've uprooted and they've disappeared. And there's no way for you to access to get access to them. And if you can't get access to them, you can't implicate anybody in Washington. So mm -hmm. just kind of has them over a barrel. And on top of that, there's uh, they get news that if anything should happen to any of the people within the special ops force, uh, you know, uh, should they mysteriously or accidentally die, uh, all of that stuff will be leaked for for the world to see stuff uh, that could damage everyone. So. Yeah, it's just it's just a bad place to be, and Fury is just stuck in a position where he can't really do anything. He's he's kind of uh, his hands are tied, and what ends up happening is at the end he he has one final drink with Shirley, and then she tries to proposition him, and he just turns her down. And it's just such a sad scene because. She doesn't even have that anymore, you know. Before, yeah. She had Fury, but she doesn't even have that, and it's as if like she didn't think she could get any lower. But here we are, like just a realization that she doesn't even have the same appeal that she used to have. And Fury, he he exits because his mind is just so distraught over the fact that the Barracuda and his people got away with it, that he can't even be around Shirley. He he takes off, and what we discover is he finds the Barracuda, um, you know, in, in where wherever he's hidden himself out at, and he just beats the crap out of him. And for us as the reader, in that moment where we're watching him beat the crap out of the Barracuda, there's some very small satisfaction, but Ennis just finds a way to pull that right back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it just ends with uh, Fury standing over the Barracuda, and he's messed him up just enough so that he can say that he messed him up, but, you know, he, he can't kill him because of the leverage that the Barracuda holds. So he just goes, sometimes the uniform fucks back. And then it just jumps to a scene of Fury in the present, uh, you know, sitting in his hotel. And he goes, but when all was said and done, I knew it would mean about as much as my next shit. Exactly. Totally pointless. Totally pointless. In the big picture. Yeah. It's it's very satisfying in a, in, in a very short-term way, but ultimately... It's a fleeting it's, satisfaction. It really is. Yeah. And that's that's the last altercation, and then we finally get to uh, the epilogue of the whole story, where we see where everybody's life ends up after an entire lifetime of putting themselves through these conflicts. And uh, yeah, we mentioned a little bit about you know Fury meeting with Gap again, and just being confronted with the fact that after all these years of uh, fighting these wars, 
um, it's almost this fitting punishment uh, to realize that it was all kind of for nothing, uh, that it was all just to prop up just evil bastards. And then, you know, we see Shirley sharing that moment with Hatherly. Um, but that moment with Hatherly really does lead up to Shirley's final moment, which is... Uh, Woman because, decides she's had enough. Yeah, exactly. McCuskey, he, he has one of his girls over, and she's in the kitchen, and she's just spilled her drink. And this, you know, attractive young woman comes out and she just gives Shirley this look. It's, I don't know, it's it's stomach churning, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she's just in this, like, nightgown and Shirley's just an old woman now, a haggard old woman. And she watches Wait, this young... Are you calling her a hag? No, I, I meant she is haggard. Is there a difference? <laughs> I'm not sure. That's a good question, man. I think so, right? Like someone <laughs> who's haggard is just someone who's worn out. Whereas someone who's... I feel like calling someone a hag is worse than calling them haggard. Okay, okay. Like, it's just a statement of your condition as opposed to you being a thing. Uh, I don't know. But what we see is the girl, the the girl in the lingerie goes back and Pug is just, he's just putting it to her. And it's, again, another pretty pathetic scene because here's this balding, overweight dude just, you know, getting off and this girl is completely unaffected by it yeah this girl is completely unaffected by it and Shirley comes in and just straight like caps her in the eye yep and then she caps him and then yeah. gives fury one more call caps herself yeah yeah it's it's pretty messed up and it's not even but even before she kills him, she she's just like, well, finish what you were doing. Yeah, like why you did know? she do? Why did she say that? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was a final act of revenge, just just to. So he would live with the with the fear for a few seconds. I, I'm. If I had to say, I, I'd say. If this is the thing that brought him any sense of joy she wanted to rob him of that joy because at that point he was just he was just humping a corpse yeah so it was just like if this is all i can do to take that from you then uh and and ruin something for you then that's what i'm gonna do Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah but uh yeah, she ends up killing herself uh, after that. After that final phone call to, to Fury, and you can tell that the cumulative uh, weight of everything just 
it just leaves Fury in a bad place, man. Like, I do not envy this guy by the end of the story. I I can't say that his decisions put me in a position to, uh, you know, feel super bad for him because at the end of the day, those are decisions that he made. But, man, the life, the path not chosen, right? Yeah. Yeah, I do think that the book ends on a pretty interesting note. Not, well, interesting is such a weak word. I think it it ends on this really poignant, meaningful note that gives you, as the reader, something to think about after everything that he's been through. Uh, to end the book on thinking back to on Fury thinking back to his conversation in issue one with Hatherly that we didn't see uh, earlier um, where they're talking about the flag. And then, yeah, Fury just in his narration, he he's thinking back to what Hatherly told him. And he says, he told me it had to do with the debt we owed to the past and the responsibility we owed to the future, referring to what the flag means. He said it was right there for all to see. Blood on the bandaged wounds of brave men and all the stars in the sky. And then the last three panels are just this haggard-looking fury in his uh, bathrobe just putting down... Or he, he stops talking and he just uh, lays the microphone he was talking into on his chest and closes his one good eye and then we just get a shot of a pistol uh, on the counter next to him and that's just how it ends it's it's this really unsettling offbeat note because it it gives us this sort of really inspirational message about america and what the flag represents mm. but it ends with this shot of an extremely tired looking fury who's just world wary uh and and you know been through all the wars and stuff and it looks like it looks like he's ready to die and i I feel like it's kind of ambiguous if he's about to kill himself or not Mm. and it just leaves you at that with with that uneasy feeling where it it's almost like a song that builds up to something and it it's about to it gives you like it gives you a resolution uh, but then, like the last couple notes, they don't leave you with that completely satisfying feeling. Like you're still waiting for something to completely finish the song, you know. So it, yeah. that, that's kind of what this reminds me of. Where, mm. yeah, there's it's not that it's an unfinished story, but it it just leaves you with that feeling of mm. uneasiness and a feeling mm. of dang like all of that uh and it ends like this but yeah still in a, in a satisfying way you know it's it's just a, a powerful way to end the story because it's i think if it had, if it had ended on a purely inspirational note it kind of would have felt counterintuitive to everything that we had just read uh-huh. but to end it the way that it does end where the mm inspirational element is balanced with this 
grim reality. I, I think that is what gives the story uh, a lot of its meaning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I can be quite as optimistic uh, or if I can look on the bright side quite as much. Uh, I don't know. The, the The weight of everything that they've lost just feels too heavy for me personally um yeah uh, that you're right that one quote from hatherly is pretty inspirational but i don't know man there's something about about there's something about the idea that that's something that he said then right juxtaposed against what the reality of what the current state of the situation is that I don't. It, it feels like it negates the the optimism of that statement for me, and and the the other added extra thought is, you know, if if it does feel like Fury is this stand-in for America to some degree, then it's like it almost feels like it's the promise of what could have been. Uh, but this is all that he is now. Ah, I don't know, man. Maybe I just like to revel in just <laughs> morbid thoughts because deep down inside, I'm just an emo kid. Mm, I mean, I think that's what I'm saying, though, with the ambiguity and the ending. I, I, I'm not sure uh if i don't know i i guess i said what i said and we'll just have to rewind the tape and listen to it to see if i made any <laughs> sense a few seconds ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right well do you uh have any books that you'd recommend that would uh you know, fill the sweet spot of someone who wants to read something that's similar to this? Yeah. So during our conversation, we mentioned the Fury Max series from 2001. I would not really recommend that. That's more on the kind of like the excess of Garth Ennis's uh, penchant for violence and bleak comedy. But he also did a series called Fury Peacemaker, which is a six-issue Marvel Knights miniseries originally published in 2006. That one had art by Derek Robertson also, but it's one of the more... It's a serious war comic, and I think that one does make a good uh, prologue of sorts to My War Gone By because it gives you Fury's story in World War II and essentially uh, shows us how he came to be who he is. And, and like, it shows you how he became, uh, how he was an effective soldier who gets broken and then learns to enjoy war and eventually become addicted to it. But it's, it's still a good story in and of itself. Uh, we also talked about Ennis's Punisher run, 
definitely go read that is war stories comics i would highly recommend those especially the vertigo issues so try to look for those the battlefields comics from dynamite uh if you just can find one story from battlefields look up dear billy which uh i mentioned earlier on you have anything um yeah I, i got a couple of things i think the one book that i'd mention um in his body of work is unknown soldier it's a four issue miniseries he did uh i forget who the artist is but killian plunkett yeah and it's another story about i guess not necessarily being addicted to war but it's it's a it's a story of intrigue and uh you know just what it's like to be in that life of uh, espionage and um, just the the things that people lose, uh, you know, when they commit themselves to it. It's it's something that have, I'd have to reread again, but uh, it it was pretty good from what I remember, and it 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 had quite a bit of heart towards the end of it, even. Um, yeah, I don't want to give away too much about it, but it's it's I do think it's in line with um the things that he has to say about war and you know, governments and uh how they treat uh the people uh as as a byproduct of war. Mm-hmm. The other book that I'd recommend is something that I also read this year. I read it in tandem with uh, the Punisher Max run. And I actually think it was a pretty fitting thing to read uh, at the same time. But it was a it was the Unknown Soldier series by Joshua Dysart and Alberto Ponticelli. And uh, that's another comic where... It takes place in a different conflict zone. It it's a story that's steeped in uh, the African continent, in all in the in a lot of the wars and conflicts that are going on there. But it's it's another con comic that examines the idea of what violence and war can do to a person, and even ask the moral question of is it wrong is it always wrong to to use is there ever a right time to use violence uh you know in response to other acts of violence i guess but it's it's a pretty good book and i i do think it's worth checking out if you are interested in reading more comics like Fury by War Gone By. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. I have a couple uh, other recommendations that are, well, they're they're more like specifically Vietnam stories, but one of them is The Best We Could Do by T. Bui. And that one is pretty different because it's not really a war comic, but... It's actually more of a memoir about her and her family uh, escaping Vietnam. But it starts with like her parents, uh, their life 
before and, and during the war and then their escape from Vietnam and their migration to the U.S. as refugees. And that's probably uh, something that I think is pretty educational because it's not, I don't think it's a story that we see too often, uh, just in general, uh, and and probably not in any comics because I feel like most comics about Vietnam that we see are just war comics, you know? But uh, the best we could do is, is something that I think will do a lot to, yeah, just enlighten readers, you know? Like, it, it gives you a, a new understanding for people who actually had to live through the stuff that happened, you know? Like, they were just, her parents were normal people who just got caught up in this conflict and tried to escape. And it's uh, it's powerful stuff. It's based in reality. It's not a typical war kind of comic, but I think if anyone enjoys war stories, they should probably read that story because it's about people who are deeply affected by the war. Mm-hmm. One more Vietnam War comic that was from, I don't know, like five or six years ago, maybe. It's a comic called Tet by Paul Allor and Paul Tucker. That one uh, was a shorter series, I think. And it's it's fictional, but I thought it was a pretty enjoyable comic. Uh, I, I can't say I remember the plot clearly enough to give a full summary or a synopsis of it. But uh, just when I was thinking about Vietnam War comics, that was one that came to mind and made me want to pull it off my shelf for a reread. Mm. Yeah, man. All those are good choices. And uh, we hope you guys check them out. Uh, you know, we hope you guys check out Fury My War Gone By as well. And uh, if you guys have any comments or anything regarding any of these books, um, or if you guys have any of your own recommendations, Feel free to hit us up on our Instagram at Between the Gutters or email us at Between the Gutters Podcast at gmail.com or heck, tweet at us at Between the Gutters. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Also, if you happen to enjoy what you've been listening to, you know, uh, give us a high rating on whatever platform you happen to be listening to. That would greatly help us. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time. Peace. Bye, guys.